What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 20B of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. I'd like to start today by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation on whose lands this podcast was recorded. I'd also like to pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging, as well as to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening to this podcast. We're back and breaking new records here on the ERRR. Firstly, this is the first time that we've released an ERRR episode after only a fortnight rather than a month. And secondly, this is the first return interview for the ERRR. In this episode, we'll be speaking again to the flippin' fantastic Mr. Craig Barton. As mentioned in episode 20A, Craig is the author of a wonderful book entitled How I Wish I'd Taught Maths. He's a creator of a whole host of fantastic maths teaching websites also, such as Diagnostic Questions and Same Surface, Different Deep. And he's also the host of world-renowned education podcast, the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast, amongst many other things. If you haven't caught his podcast as yet, I'd highly recommend the episodes with Dylan William, Robert and Elizabeth Bjork, or Tom Sherrington. If you haven't had enough of my voice, you could dig up the episode in which Craig interviews me about my reflections upon learning to teach and teaching to learn. Last ERRR episode with Craig, we spoke all about knowledge versus skills, explicit instruction, and in a whole heap of detail about diagnostic questions. In this second discussion, we start off by talking about both mistakes and misconceptions. We talk about what's the difference between these two things and how should we deal with each of them in the classroom. From there, we move on to tests, 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 and Craig tells us all about the testing effect and what a revelation it was for his own teaching when he learned about the power of this form of learning. Booting upon the testing effect, I asked Craig to go into detail about his quiz homework quiz combination that he wrote about in his book, and I ask how it's going six months on. And just a hint, you're going to hear some real-world firsts in this part of the interview. From there, we discuss key things to keep in mind when organising exam revision. We then go on to discussing how to create change at the school level. This is probably one of my favourite parts of the interview, as Craig talks about some of the hard-won and valuable lessons he's learned about creating change at the school, department, and even this classroom level. We wind up with Craig sharing what he's changed his mind about since the book came out. And I also ask him about how he's managed the tricky relationships and the tricky dynamic in which, for example... Craig has grown, his teaching has grown in a different direction to some people that he's mentored or been the mentee of in the past and how he's managed those relationships. I also asked Craig what advice he would give to his first year teacher self and we finish on a big six that Craig shares. He shares a generic big three of his favourite blogs and edgy resources for all and then he shares three more really specific takeaways and and favourite resources that he particularly wanted to share with the Craig Barton fans. As you can tell from this intro, it's a mammoth interview and I hope you enjoy the discussion as much as I did. Before we jump into the ERRR, just a reminder about my weekly email entitled Teacher Ollie's Takeaways. In this email, I share a handful of insightful, interesting and hopefully actionable articles that I've come across from Twitter, blogs and various other sources from the week just past. It comes out 3.30 every Friday afternoon, perfectly timed for your weekend reading pleasure. Last week, it included articles on the impact of digital devices in the classroom, 
the strengths and weaknesses and future directions of randomized controlled trials, or RCTs, in education research. A fantastic list of STEM project resources, suitable from the primary right up to the upper secondary levels, and some great commentary on the phonics debate, and much, much more. If you'd like to sign up to this weekly email, just jump onto ollilevel.com and you should see the sign-up form in no time. So without any further ado, let's jump straight into episode 20B of the Education Research Reading Room with Craig Barton. Craig Barton, welcome back to the Education Research Reading Room. Hi, Ollie. You okay? Wonderful to have you on again. My pleasure, mate. My pleasure. Let's just start today. Talking a little bit about mistakes, you know, it's it's often hard for teachers to know exactly what to do when a when a student brings up a misconception or when a teacher themselves makes a mistake and and is wondering kind of where to go with that. So you talked a little bit about your about it in your book, but I was wondering if you wanted to talk about some things you found helpful when it comes to dealing with mistakes in the classroom. Sure. I mean, first off, Ollie, we, we've got to get right to the heart of this because you've used two phrases that you've used mistake and you've used misconception. And I, I think there's a difference between, between between the two. And there's a difference in how we deal with them as well. So it's not exactly black and white. They're, they're kind of shades in the middle. But mistakes for me are, are little slips that anybody makes. I make them left, right and centre. Kids make them all the time. And they're really frustrating when kids make a mistake. So a mistake may be a mental arithmetic error. They may see five plus three and by mistake, they write down seven. And the thing with mistakes is that if you say to students, you have made a mistake somewhere here, the chances are they'll find them. But the downside of mistakes is that they are not very predictable. Kids will make the most random mistakes you've ever seen. And it's quite hard to, to kind of iron them out altogether. Whereas a misconception for me is something fundamentally different. A misconception is something that's deeply embedded. And I've, with my, we spoke about diagnostic questions on the on the previous interview. And I'm obsessed, Ollie, with with misconceptions. I'm obsessed with where they come from. I'm obsessed with identifying them. And I'm I'm obsessed with the best way of dealing with them. For me, a misconception. Dylan Williams speaks about this. One of the causes of misconceptions is overgeneralization. So students learn one way of doing something that works with a lot of things and they overgeneralize it when they encounter new stuff. So a classic mm. example here is adding adding fractions. Students are so used to seeing that plus sign and they whenever they see a plus sign, they just add the two things together. And then all of a sudden when they're confronted with one third plus two fifths, it's no longer not right just to add the two top things and add the two bottom things. But it, it seems sensible they overgeneralize because it's never let them down before. Or likewise, another classic is multiplying by 10. Sticking a zero on the end of things works for so long for students, but then all of a sudden when they get 2.3 times 10, it's not enough. It doesn't work just to say 2.30 anymore. So misconceptions tend to come, a lot of them come from, from overgeneralization. But the interesting thing for me about misconceptions as opposed to mistakes is that they're predictable. As long as you have kind of enough teaching experience, you've seen, you've taught enough kids, you've seen this, or you've spoken to enough teachers, you, you Kids tend to make the same, have the same misconceptions over the years. And that's why, again, going back to diagnostic questions, one of my key ways of planning for lessons is I go on the website, on my diagnostic questions website, and I choose the topic I'm teaching. Let's say it's boring, but let's say adding fractions. And what I do is I call up all the questions added, answered on adding fractions, but I sort them by most misconceptions or, or worst answered questions. And that then ah. finds me kind of the top three the top three or four worst answered questions on adding fractions. 
and I look at why kids are getting them wrong, because that's the beauty of a diagnostic question. You can, it doesn't just tell you that kids have got things wrong. You, you, by looking at the nature of the answer, you can see why they've got it wrong. And therefore, I can then go into my lessons thinking, actually, this question has been answered 50,000 times. 23% of kids around the world have this specific misconception. The chances are around about that proportion of my kids are going to have that misconception. So I'm going to plan for it. So regardless of how I choose to deal with it, I can then go into lessons with a really good idea of what that misconception is, as opposed to it just appearing mid-lesson and, and catching me off guard. So that's the first thing I'd say, Ollie, if that makes sense. First, sure. There's a distinction between mistakes and misconceptions. And the big difference for me is misconceptions are largely predictable. If you have enough data, if you have enough experience, if you've worked with enough students, and, and you can fast track that for me on diagnostic questions by already tapping into thousands, tens of thousands of answers, as opposed to doing what I had to do, which was teach for 12 years, and then being constantly surprised by these misconceptions. So that's the first thing to say, that they're, they're predictable. But then it's the big question of how on earth do you deal with them? <clears throat> And this, honestly, I'll, I've wrestled with this for, for flipping ages. And I'm not convinced I've got the answer. And I'd be interested in your, your take on this. Because there's two schools of thought with dealing with misconceptions. The first is that you, you almost hope they don't come up. And you deal with them when they do. So you teach everything right. You, you do all your worked examples. You do all that kind of stuff. And you kind of almost cross your fingers and hope they don't come up. And then when they do come up, then you confront them. But the other school of thought is, you just get it out in the open. You confront these misconceptions head on. You show kids these misconceptions and you try to convince them why they're wrong. And that tends to fit into what's called cognitive conflict. So you try and you try and utilize the shock factor of seeing a wrong answer, explain to students in a way that they can understand, relating to prior knowledge, why it's wrong. And then hopefully that'll stick more then if either they are never confronted with that misconception or you just kind of deal with it, you know, quickly. Oh, no, that's not the right way to do it. This is this is the right way to do it. So I, I'm in two minds with this. My, my the where, where I'm at at the moment is that when I introduce a concept for the first time, I, <laughs> I try to teach it correct. That's why we spoke in the previous interview how I'm how I take a lot of control when I present works examples. I present it in the way that I have planned it out. I use explanations I've carefully thought through. I want kids' first experience of a concept to be the right way of doing it. But then I think we touched upon the show call elements of, of works examples where I wander around the class and I'm looking for examples of kids' work. If I see a misconception there, I'm going to confront it there and then. I'm going to grab that mini whiteboard. I'm going to thank the student for, for allowing me to, to take it up to the front. I'm going to show it to the class. I'm going to say, I'm going to be honest, there's a mistake on here somewhere. Can, can anybody find it? Where's the mistake come from? How can we address it? And so on and so forth. But I think the first time kids see something, it needs to be the correct way. Whereas in the past, I'm obsessed with a spot the mistake exercise or on Tez. I, th I think I mentioned in the in the book and you picked up on it, Ollie, an author from Tez's resources on Erica's errors and Clumsy Clive, where it's it's worked examples that have got mistakes in them and kids have to find them. I think I've used them too early in the process in the past. Mm. For me, that comes later on. I, I think you've got to teach kids the right way to do things first. You've got to give that them that kind of foundation level of knowledge. And then if misconceptions are still lingering, that's when you've got to confront them. And that's where the process of cognitive conflicts, it's risky, but 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 can be quite effective. I, I don't know if that makes any sense, but that's that's where I'm at at the moment. It does make sense. And I was interested in your book. I, I believe the author you quoted was maybe Zohar. 
and you were talking about kind of differential impacts of using cognitive conflict as an instructional approach. And you were talking about how usually higher achievers deal better and benefit more from this cognitive conflict kind of approach yeah. than low achievers. So is, is that familiar? Yeah, it, it is. Yeah. And it is, it is frustrating that, right? Because it's almost a lot. And we've got to be careful with high achieving and low achieving. It could all be kicking off if, if we go down that road. Totally. The, the, the interesting thing there is that the low achieving students, if we're going to use that term, they're almost the ones that are going to, who we need to really identify this, mis these misconceptions and confront them and get them resolved. But yeah, the, the, the research I read, and again, it's, it seems to, it seems to make quite logical sense to me. I, I don't know what your take was, but suggested that these low achieving students, because they don't have this as much prior knowledge, they, they can't almost understand the cognitive conflict. And what actually tends to happen is you get a backfire effect where they actually, mm. they're just as likely to remember the wrong way of doing it as the right way. So the classic one adding fractions, if you confront them with why one third plus two fifths is wrong, and I've done this in the past, I've said, okay, let's assume one third plus two fifths is equal to four eighths or, or, or whatever it is. Let's assume that. And then let's do that on a diagrammatical approach. If that is true, that means that you are taking, uh, you know, and you show them with the pictures or with the pizzas or whatever, and you, you show them that it cannot possibly be true. And with high achieving students, they see that and they think, oh, yeah, actually, and they get that shock. OK, I get that. But the low achieving students, according to the research, are just as likely to see that and think, oh, that's the correct way of doing it. So it can really backfire this, this cognitive conflict. So I, I use it really sparingly, Ollie. It's like a, it's like a last resort for me. I have it up my sleeve. And I'm kind of thinking, oh, God, this could, this could go wrong if I use this. But if I need to, uh, I'll certainly dig it out and give it a go. Totally. In the past, when I've been doing some research about kind of activism and changing people's ideas about, you know, whether it be mm -hmm. vaccines or climate change or animal rights and things like that, I came across some really interesting research in this same vein. So basically, a quite a common way of people presenting content like this, they'll be like, true or false, you know, vaccines cause autism, for example. And what happens is if you, if you use this approach, if you test the people a day or two later, generally they'll be pretty good and their, and their retention will be quite high and the misconceptions will be ameliorated. But if you then go longer term, two, three months, what you find is people revert back to their previous conception, but they're also more sure that they're right because they know <laughs> that they had some information. They went to a presentation. So, so yeah, oh, geez, it's, yeah. it's, it's really dangerous. It's really dangerous. <laughs> All right, Craig, we've been talking about, about challenges and, and misconceptions, and I, and I wanted to pick up on, on one that you mentioned in the book. You, you told us to keep it a secret in the book when you talked about it, but I, I thought I'd bring it out into the <laughs> open. You talked about your own personal challenges with 3D trigonometry. And I, and, and I was quite interested because you talked about how, I think it was in um, you know, 3D examples, you, you just really struggle to spot which angle is relevant or which, which length mm. is relevant. And it made me think, you know, we've all got our limits. And I was wondering on your, you know, some people say that the way that school's structured, we end up asking students to stick in maths too long. We should take more of an apprenticeship approach. But I was just, yes, yeah, so I was interested in your reflection on, on that. And I was interested in you to share more about your relationship with 3D trigonometry. <laughs> well, thanks for bringing this up, Holly. Yeah, a nice one. <laughs> uh, you see, 
Yeah, look, there's there's two areas of maths. I don't know if I can say crap on your podcast, but cut it out if I can't. But I'm I'm just chucking in there. Two areas of maths that I'm pretty crap at, and that is anything to do with mechanics. I just can't do. But I, I know why that is, and that's because I I don't like it, and I haven't put enough time into it. So mechanics, I don't know if it's the the, the same um, down under, but I'm talking friction. I'm talking forces. The physicsy side of maths. I absolutely detest it. And as a as an A-level teacher, as a post-16 teacher, I've, I've unfortunately had to teach it a couple of times. And early on in my career, a big mistake I made was I used to make it very clear to the kids that I detested exactly what I was doing. And I used to say, this isn't proper maths. Stats is the way forward. I don't know why we're wasting our time with doing this, but we have to do it. And that was terrible. You're hurting my feelings as a physics teacher. Yeah, I know, here, I know, I know, I know, I know. I knew we'd fall out over this. It's not a popular opinion I've got at all on this one. And the problem was, of course, the kids then shared my mindset. So, and inevitably, and it was probably because I wasn't teaching it well, uh, that was probably a key factor, but the results weren't great in that. And and kids didn't particularly like it because I didn't like it and so, and so on and so forth. But as I say, I, so first, the first thing to say is that's a terrible thing for a teacher to do. I think it's fine to admit you find things are difficult, but saying you don't like areas of maths, I think that's dangerous ground. I, and, and I'm all in favor of teachers being honest and sharing their experiences with kids. And I think it's really valuable. And I'll talk about this when I talk about the 3D trig stuff for a teacher to say, look, I'll be honest with you. I find this difficult, but I still keep going at it. And these are the strategies I use. I think that's brilliant. That's completely different from a teacher saying, I don't like this area of math. So that's one thing I've tried to really change with mechanics and other areas of math. And I'm not a big fan of, uh, but the reason I was no good at mechanics is I haven't put enough work into it. Whereas other areas of maths, I've sat down, I've done all the past papers, everything like that. I've just, for whatever reason, I've, I've tried to wing it when it comes to mechanics and it, it's not it's not been great. I think legally, I'm not allowed to teach it anymore. I certainly haven't been giving it on my timetable for many, many years now. So people have cottoned on to the fact I'm crap at this now. 3D trig's another matter because of course, 3D trigonometry, or I'm going to broaden this, Ollie, to anything where I need to visualize something. My, my, I don't know if this is a condition or whatever, but my spatial awareness is horrendous. I'm terrible at parking. I'm terrible at judging the size of the gaps and stuff. I'm really, really bad at it. But what's, what's different for me with this as opposed to mechanics is I've had to teach this many, many times. So anything like nets is something I'm bad at as well, right? When you've got like a, a cube and you see a net of a cube and you've got to say, will this form a cube or not? It's just a 50-50 guess for me. I'm like, oh, maybe that one will, maybe that one. I've nothing. I've got, I've got nothing to go off. I have no kind of natural flair for it. Some people can just see these things. So I have to force myself to be quite mechanical about it. So if we go back to 3D trigonometry, and I'm trying to spot the 2D triangle to be able to work out the length of the diagonal in a cube or the, the, the gradient of a slope or something like that. I can't, I've got nothing natural to rely upon. I've, I've got to, to, to either, yeah, be, be quite systematic about it and, and trying to rule stuff out and, and, and get help and get advice, even off the kids and stuff. And it's a tricky one because I think I now teach it fairly well because I go out there and I say, look, I struggle with this and this is what works for me. But some of you will be quite lucky. Some of you will be able to see stuff. But if you're not quite lucky in this and you're like me, this strategy will may work for you. And we work together and it's quite a nice atmosphere when I teach it. But then that broadens out because that's made me quite empathetic when it comes to areas that students find difficult, like algebra. Like I say, what? Give me a triple bracket to multiply out. I'm happy as I'm happy as Larry Ollie. I'll do that all day long. But some kids really struggle with with that particular area, mm. and 
And in the past, I used to struggle to understand that. And whilst I still can't put myself in their shoes because of curse of knowledge or whatever, at least I can say to myself, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Their, their struggle with that is exactly the same as your struggle with 3D trig or your struggle with nets or your struggle with mechanics. So I can, I can certainly, I think it's useful for a teacher to find an area of maths, whatever level it is, even if they don't teach it, that they struggle with. It's important for them to put themselves in the shoes of a student who struggles with something because then you can, firstly, it makes you more patient, it makes you more empathetic. But also it makes you search around for strategies that, that help that help you. And that, that for me kind of helps me teach it a bit better, if, if that makes sense. So I, I, don't know if that, I don't know if that answers your question, but certainly I think it's definitely important for, for teachers to admit that they struggle with things for students, but certainly not for that to tip over into dislike, if, if that makes sense. It does make sense. One, I think it's a strength to be have weaknesses in some areas because, like you said, it means you're not suffering from the curse of knowledge in those areas and you probably makes you, in many ways, a better teacher. I was also – I was interested, though, because we've, we've acknowledged that, you know, you have trouble with 3D trig, I have trouble with, with some things, and, and many students have trouble, trouble with algebra, for example. But what about for the students who just – there's something about maths – that they've just struggled to ever find something that clicks in their head and it's always just been this massive challenge. Do you, do you think that our, our education system is structured in such a way that it's appropriate for them? Do you think we should be doing something different or do you have any amazing Mr. Barton tricks to kind of get these <laughs> students on side? I've definitely no amazing tricks. I can, I can tell you that much. I, I can tell you what doesn't work, Ollie. And that, I think we we maybe touched upon this in the first intro. I certainly bang about this uh, all the time. And that's that's this over-obsession of, of trying to hook kids in by, by making maths relevant to their lives. And you see this in lessons a lot with teachers trying to trying to come up with the most tenuous reasons for doing trigonometry or Pythagoras or whatever. And that, that, that doesn't work. But I'll tell you where you see this in the UK, and I, I don't know whether this is true, but in Australia is you see this in, we have qualifications that spring up like functional skills or even kind of core maths to, to a certain degree. And the idea of that is it's it's utilizing maths in practical circumstances. So you get it in terms of kind of working out interest on on loans would, would be a classic thing or, or reading electricity bills and all this kind of stuff. Mm. And I see the need for something like that because it's it's to try and make the population as general more and more numerous in, in areas that they are actually going to utilize when they leave school. So if you've got a kid who's not going to do maths post 16 and certainly not going to do it at university, it, what's more useful for them to leave school at 16, being able to find the hypotenuse of a right angle triangle or being able to work out what, what they're paying on one of these ridiculous payday loans or getting a mortgage and all this kind of stuff. But it goes back to a point that, again, I continually bang on about, and I was too slow picking up on this, Ollie. And that's unless unless the fundamental knowledge is in place, even that becomes a frustrating experience. Because take like interest payments and stuff. If kids don't have a foundational baseline knowledge in percentages and percentage increase, and, and I've, I've had plenty of practice in that, then as soon as you bring in this outside context of a loan or whatever, or a mortgage or something like that, it becomes one of these multi-step problems. Mm. And I am convinced, I am absolutely convinced, and I know you're a contributor to my Slice of Advice podcast that I put out recently, and Colin Foster on there, one of my favorite clips, apart, apart from yours, of course, Ollie, was, was Colin Foster made a brilliant point about problem solving. And he said that he believes, and when I first heard this, oh, flipping heck, are you sure about this? He believes that kids 
really struggle solving problems with knowledge that they have learned within the last two years. Dylan William mentioned this as well in your podcast. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's incredible, right? It's incredible. And he says that whenever the problem solving difficulties are raised, the knowledge requirements need to be really low. So if you're asking kids to do kind of several steps within a problem, then the actual content or the skills or whatever you want to say, or the topics involved within those seven steps better be really, really simple. Otherwise, it's going to be too much of a struggle. And whether you put this in the term, in the, the terminology of cognitive load theory and goal-free problems and cognitive overload or whatever, however you want to term it. I mean, I've seen this, Ollie. I've seen kids who they can kind of just about do the basics. And then as soon as it's in a multi-step problem or a contextual problem, it all goes to pieces because you're asking them to to carry out stuff that they're not familiar with and piece it together and take in this context and filter out what's relevant and what's not relevant. And it's too much. So I see this with, with these students who really, really struggle mathematically. And the, the idea is supposed to be, okay, well, let's give them a context where this is useful. And we're hoping that they'll develop the basic skills and understand this context and be able to solve the problem. I think it's too much. And it turns kids off just as much as mm. all the other maths that they used to do is. And, and it almost turns them off more because we're kind of saying to kids, look, this is, this is what maths is for. This is the maths that's going to get you through life. And they're like, well, I'm crap at this as well. I don't get this either. <laughs> so it, go, it goes back to, to what I always say. And it's so boring, but kids have to taste success. However they get it, they have to be made to feel successful in mathematics. And if that means giving them 10 questions in no context whatsoever on the most dull worksheets or on a PowerPoint and getting them to do those questions and making a big, big deal of the fact that they're doing them and getting them to try and explain their reason and saying, to them, you've got these, you can do this. All right, now I'm going to just ramp up the difficulty a little bit and just being so slow and so incremental and getting them to taste that success and holding fire on any kind of problem or any kind of context or anything like that. For me, that's the only way. And sure, it, for some kids, it's going to take longer. And that's why I always say differentiation by, by time far beats differentiation by giving kids different tasks to do. Kids are going to take more time, some kids, to, to be able to get things than, than other students. But for me, Ollie, that, that's the only way to, to, to get these kids on board and to, to get them. Because kids, at the end of the day, they've got to be willing to put the effort in. They've got to be willing to think hard. Rob Coe talks about this. Learning happens when kids think hard. And if kids are confronted with these things that they just give up on before they've even tried, they're not going to think hard and they're not going to magically learn no matter what the context is or no matter how relevant they perceive it to be. So I need kids to taste success. So it's a boring answer. But for me, it's, it's, it's the only answer. I've got to go. I've got to strip it back to the point where I can get kids feeling successful. And then I take it from there, if, if that makes sense. Mm. Thanks, Craig. That's fantastic. I might move into testing now. This was one of the sections of your book that you emphasized most strongly. So I was wondering if you wanted to start us off by talking, talking to us a little bit about what you used to think about tests and what you now think about tests. Yeah, sure. Test has been a big one for me, Ollie. And whenever I'm lucky enough to speak to teachers and they say, and it's a classic thing teachers will say, give me a quick fix. And I, I tell you what, just going back to what I said previously, I think teachers are the same as kids, right? When, I, when it, teachers need to, to taste success fairly early on. So mm. you go to some kind of training days and stuff. I've, I've been lucky enough to, to, to attend many. Some of the things you learn about 
you, you implement, but they're actually, they're going to take two or three months for you to see the kind of fruition of them. And that can be quite frustrating, especially if it's a lot of effort to kind of, to, to kind of put in and build into your routine and so on. So I always like to leave teachers with something that they're going to experience immediate success with, something that they can try tomorrow in their lesson. And it used to be for me like a nice activity or a nice problem or a nice puzzle and, and teachers go away thinking, oh, I'm going to I'm going to try this tomorrow with my class and blah, blah, blah. And that, that works quite nice sometimes. But if you're looking for a strategy for me, testing or what I now call low stakes quizzing, it's it's a really, really simple one. And I reckon within about a week, you're going to start to see some really positive consequences from this. But what I used to do was terrible, really, was that and it, it's similar to what I was talking about mechanics. I used to see tests purely as tools of assessment. That's probably the simplest way to say it. And they tended to be high stakes tools of assessment as well, in the sense that so we have six half terms in, in the UK and kids tend to do a test at the end of each half term or certainly at the end of each term. So you do a big Christmas one, a big Easter one and a big summer one. And that's whatever year group you're in. And obviously, you're in if you're in year 11 or year 13, the summer one will be really high stakes. It'll be GCSE or it'll be A-level. But even if you're in one of the lower year groups, the tests are still pretty high stakes because the kids know that they're going to be marked by their teacher. They're probably going to get a level or a grade for them. That level or grade is going to be committed to some Excel spreadsheet. It's probably going to appear on a report. Parents are probably going to be informed about it. And if they mess it up, there's a chance that they're going to move down set if the classes are setted or, or streamed. And as well, flip side of that, if they do well on that, they're potentially going to move up a set. So it becomes a really, really big deal, these tests. So for, for, for kids, it's high stakes, it's pressure, and it's all about the results. What does the result mean in terms of what's going to happen next? To me as a student, what's going to be the positive consequences, what's going to be the negative consequences? And for teachers, again, tests to me just meant hassle. It meant work. It meant going through a big stack of papers. It meant putting marks down. It potentially meant moderating, which is flipping boring. So marking someone else is then having a big, bring all your tests to departmental meetings. Let's have a chat. Because I find marking hard, Ollie, particularly like a five mark question with a really bad mark scheme. Where do you allocate the first marks? Who has the second marks? God almighty, it's, it's dull. And then you're having big arguments about it. So tests for me meant work, tests for kids meant pressure. So just like mechanics, I wouldn't exactly be the most positive about tests. So I wouldn't be saying, oh, brilliant news for you lot. We've got a test next Monday. Let's have a party about it. Because neither of neither me nor the kids would, would be would be looking forward to these things. But then I started reading. And again, <laughs> it frustrates me I didn't know about this before. And I'd be interested how long it, it took you to pick up on, on the, the kind of power of tests, Ollie. And th there's loads of papers out there and well, we can dig into the testing effects and all that kind of stuff. But that, but that, the paper that really did it for me, and I think it's called The 10 Benefits of Testing. And it's a flipping, it is an amazing paper. I, I take it you've read this one, Ollie, right? It's a bit, of a bit of a classic. I've had a look at it, yeah. First off, so straight off the big one we've got to get out of the way is the testing effect. So the fact that tests, are not just tools of assessment, they're tools of learning. And I was lucky enough to interview Professor Robert and Elizabeth Bjork, and they told me that one of the, the, the major misconception that people have about how memory works, how human memory works, is that they believe it works like a hard drive on a computer, that every time you retrieve some information, nothing fundamentally changes. You just call up the information, and then it just goes back to where it used to be. The folder structure on your hard drive remains exactly the same. Whereas human memory works nothing like that. Every time you retrieve something, 
it fundamentally changes the structure of long-term memory. So that memory gains retrieval strength and it gains storage strength. It takes longer to decay next time. It kind of moves up the hierarchy relevant to, to other memories and stuff that, that are stored in long-term memory. So every time we can compel students to retrieve something from long-term memory, they're actually learning more. So it becomes more retrievable next time. But it's not just that. Then if you start reading this paper, it's like a flipping dream. It's like this is the magic bullet, these tests, because it also it starts to make associate more connected associations between the thing that they've recalled and other things within long-term memory. But I'll tell, you, I'll tell you the biggest one for me, and I don't know if you found this, I know when we spoke, when I interviewed you, Ollie, you're big on your low stakes quizzes, as I am. One of the biggest benefits of, of, of regular quizzing is that it encourages kids to study more and more effectively. So I found this, you, you get kids who, if you're only formally assessing them every six weeks or even every 12 weeks or something like that, you're like, they're like, oh yeah, relax, sir. I've got this. I'm fine. I know my fractions. I know my percentages and blah, blah, blah. And the reason they think they know it is because they're sat there in lesson and they're watching you do a works example and they're trying something immediately after and they're performing quite well. And we, we, we've, we've spoke about the distinction between learning and performance. They're performing well and maybe they'll have a little glance over their nose or something like that. And it all feels nice and familiar to them. And yeah, I've got this, sir. Relax, relax, relax. Then they're in the actual test. And it's a flipping disaster because it's not it's not accessible to them in long term memory. They've, they've not got that storage strength. It's not retrievable and so on. And it's because it's the first time they've tried to do it. Whereas what I've tended to find, and I'll, I'll tell you my process in a second, but one kind of real positive side effect that I didn't necessarily see coming was that it's encouraged kids firstly to study more. So you're getting kids now because whenever you sit a test or a quiz and you get four out of 10, that's black and white. You've got four of them right and six of them wrong. You don't know the six of them. So kids are like, whoa, actually, okay, maybe I need to start doing a bit of work for this. So kids are doing more work out of lessons. That's the first one because there's no hiding from the fact that you can't do it in the moment. But secondly, kids are revising or studying more effectively. They're starting to realize whenever word gets round in the class, like it's one thing me saying, it, it's one thing me saying, highlighting notes and reading through vision guides is a waste of time or what even watching a video to, to if passively watching a video on youtube can be a bit of a waste of time it's one thing me saying it but it's a completely other thing when word gets round when the, the kid who's getting eight out of ten and nine out of ten and the person next to him says i've only got four out of ten what's your secret and they said well i practiced i did practice the questions word suddenly gets round that that is an effective way to revise an effective way to commit things to memory so that for me has been huge. So you've got the, the you've got the cognitive science behind it. You've got this this link with memory, which I'm all in favour of. But then you've got the kind of not social benefits is the wrong word, but you've got the, this this positive positive result that kids are revising more, doing more work, and the work that they're doing, they're getting more bang for the books. They're doing more effective. So as soon as I read this, Holly, I thought I've got to get I've got to get testing into it as a regular part of my routine. So that's why I I became a little bit obsessed with 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 low stakes quizzes. Fantastic. Now, a part of your book I was really interested in was this quiz homework quiz idea. And you talked <laughs> yeah. about, you talked about how you were doing this new revamp of how you were running your quizzes this year. And you were going to do on a Friday, 15 questions in test conditions, calling it a quiz, not a test. Five of the new content, five from this term and five from earlier in the students educational career. Then over the weekend, the homework was to revise the things that they got incorrect. And on Monday, they would have pretty much exactly the same quiz except different numbers, different values. And then 
there's this like 80% benchmark because they knew exactly what the quiz was going to look like. That, so they should theoretically be able to get at least 80%. And you said, you know, plus or minus a couple percent. And any student who doesn't get that 80% has a detention. <laughs> How's this been going for you? Has it, has it been working? Oh, this sounded like it made a lot of sense to me. How's it been going? Ollie, this is a world exclusive for you here. It has been a disaster. It has been an absolute disaster. And this this interest in this, right? There's a lot of lessons to be learned from this for me. So I got this idea from Danny Quinn, who's one of my favorite educationalists. She's the head of mathematics at Michaela School. I've been lucky enough to interview her twice on the podcast. One of my favorite, favorite people, such a deep thinker, such a lovely person as well. And my, my interview with Danny was was controversial. It was all kicking off whenever whenever I put it out. The NSPCC were in contact at one point, which is the National Society of Prevention for, for Cruelty to Children, because people had complained to them about what was happening. And Michaela was was cruelty and all this. It was oh, honestly it was unbelievable. Great for download figures, I should say. So if ever you want to boost your figures, Ollie, get get Danny Quinn on. Will, will be my advice. How <laughs> to work on it. But yeah, one of the controversial things Danny spoke about was this quiz homework quiz combo. And it was exactly as you described it. And they they do this in Michaela. And they go one step further, actually, Ollie. So yeah, so just to kind of build upon what you said, they they have the quiz at the end of the week. Kids do it. And and then the rest of that lesson is dedicated to going through that quiz. So the teacher will model. If there's a particular question that kids have struggled with, the teacher will provide extra examples and so on. As much support as you possibly can get within that lesson. And there are no consequences whatsoever to any child doing poorly in that lesson because it's the kind of first time they've seen some of these questions and so on. That's all about support. And it's also all about preparing them with the tools that they need and this is just my interpretation of it, by the way. Danny may have a, a slightly different one, but I, th- I think I'm right in saying this. That lesson is about preparing kids with the tools that they need for the weekend then to be effective. Because what you don't want is a, a kid getting seven out of 10 on the last day of the, the week, then going over home on the weekend and not knowing how to do those three that they got wrong. So that lesson is all about equipping kids with the skills that they need to then over the weekend, put some time in to go over the ones that they got right to ensure that they can, but also crucially focus on the ones that they got wrong. And as I say, perhaps the kids will have works examples to follow up. Perhaps the teacher will have given out a little worksheet on practice questions, perhaps or directed them to a video and encourage the kids to pause it and practice the questions and then play it and so on, or set them some homework on Hegarty maths or diagnostic questions or some system or something like that. And then Monday, exactly as you say, there's no surprises on that first lesson of the week. It's the same questions, but again, we're with, with numbers change. Exact same order of questions as well. There's literally no surprise whatsoever. And the idea there is that the, the test on Monday, and Danny said this exact phrase, the, the results of the test on Monday are not a test of ability because it's, it's, it's not fair. Like, again, I'm a believer that kids have different abilities in mathematics. And therefore, to kind of punish kids who get three out of 10 on the Friday because of whatever reason isn't fair. But Danny's point is on the Monday, that's not a test of ability, that's a test of effort. Because every student has got the opportunity to put some work in over the weekend. But of course, everyone, we spoke about mistakes a few minutes ago. Every kid will make a mistake. And that's why I didn't set the benchmark at 100%. I didn't think that was fair. So 80 felt about right to me to give the kids a little bit of a margin of error if they did make a little slip. But if students fell below that benchmark, the theory goes, and I bought into this, that that's not because that they are that they're not able at mathematics. That's because they haven't put enough effort in over the weekend. And when I spoke to Danny, she spoke about how 
kids kind of study habits and and what we talked about just before that that's all way that they study and the amount that they study kind of goes through the roof because they've got these stakes are attached to this monday quiz because if they dip below it's not just the detention they're, they're getting the scores i mean pinned up on the board and danny even spoke about addressing it in class saying like you know kayla hasn't put enough effort into this test she's only got 70 percent like making it explicit in front of all the kids and i'm listening to this thinking part of me's thinking oh my god i couldn't imagine doing that the other part of me's thinking god this makes so much sense i like this structure it, it feels fair because kids have got every opportunity whereas what i've done in the past is i mean i don't think it's right to punish students for for for, for not performing well particularly if they put effort in but i'll tell you what i have done in the past and that's whenever student has handed a homework in and it's been crap and they said i've got one out of ten and i said well that's not good enough and they said well i, I couldn't do it i got stuck i couldn't do the other nine questions and then you're in a dilemma ollie because you don't know whether that's due to a lack of knowledge or they just couldn't be asked and you just don't you just don't know what it is whereas with this that if they're getting four out of ten on the test on monday and you can say to them, well, what did you do over the weekends what were you doing in that last lesson of the week show me your work from the week because i showed you how to do these questions so I like that. I like that. You can never per perfectly separate effort and ability. But this is about as close as I've ever got to hearing about it. So you can imagine this, Holly. So I'm, I'm interviewing Danny and thoughts are going around my head. And it was towards the end of the academic year. And I'm thinking to myself, this is the game changer. This is the one for next year. This is Bolton is not going to know what's hit it when I come in with this, this idea. So I ran this by my head of department. Karen, who I've also interviewed on the podcast, and she was immediately skeptical. She she kind of bought into the idea of the quizzing, although, you know, some people take some convincing. And I would have been skeptical as well because I'd been brought up on the diet that tests were tools of assessment. So to try and make that shift to say that, that actually quizzes were tools of, of learning as well. Karen was skeptical. Big question, and I get this all the time, Ollie, is we don't have the time for that. Where do we find the time for quizzing? Because the most important part is the teaching part of it. And it's been a big shift for me in my own practice, but also to try and convince other people that actually the quizzing part is just as important as the teaching the new material. And in fact, it saves you time in the long run because what I was doing, I was teaching something in my head, teaching it well, but because I had, didn't, wasn't giving kids time and, and many occurrences to try and retrieve that knowledge, then I was having to reteach it several times in the future. So I was actually, it was costing me time in the long run. Whereas now having dedicated time for, for quizzing each lesson means actually I'm having to do the reteaching a lot less and it's, it's a bit more focused. So I managed to get her on board with that. But she was she was skeptical when it came to this idea of this, this, this kind of benchmark and particularly the consequences of it. And I'll tell you what this taught me, Ollie. And that is, you need everyone on board, right? If you're going to make a change like this, and this for me is a cultural change as much as a pedagogical change. Yes. So Michaela, one thing I think re works really well about Michaela as a school is it's a cliche, but everyone's singing from the same hymn sheet. Everyone's on board. And it's a really united front. And you see this, even just kind of following the teachers on Twitter, quite a few of them have got high profile Twitter accounts. They all say the same things. And I really get the feeling that even if they have kind of personal uh, differences, I'm sure everyone disagrees with, with stuff. You know, it's, it's just natural. The front that they give in public and crucially, the front that they give to the kids is the same. Whatever, whenever a decision has been made, we are all following this decision and we're going to be positive about it and we're going to sing the praises of it. Now, 
for many reasons, that didn't happen when I tried to bring this into our school. And I think I've, I've a lot to blame for this because I didn't do enough background work on kind of prepping teachers for why we're doing this. I think what I should have done and um, looking back is I should have trialed this with my class first, perhaps over a long period of time. For kind of two to three months, even six months, and try to show the benefits. But what I did instead was, okay, this is it, whole scale. You know, we're, we're, we're going to go in there. We're, we're going to do this. Everyone's going to do this thing. And what inevitably happened was that it was a shock for the kids because they weren't used to this at all. And some of them were lazy. Some of them didn't do the work over the weekend. And then what happened was Monday came along. They'd done nothing over the weekend. So they're getting 20%, 30%. So they're nowhere near this 80% benchmark. So it's a detention. It's a phone call home. And what happens is you've got half the school in detention and you've got teachers having to spend hours on the phone to angry parents saying, what? You, you, my kid's in detention because he got 60% on a test. What? You, have you lost your mind? So then what happens is then you start easing off, right? So then it's like, all right, okay, well, actually, let's lower it. So it's not, it's not 80% anymore. It's 60%. It's 50%. And then what about the kid who gets 40%? Come on, let me off, sir. Come on, I've got, I can't do it tonight. Or, or <laughs> like, I'm there thinking, what? Right, I have two choices here. I either spend 20 minutes on the phone to this parent who's going to be slagging me off getting really really mad at me and it's going to be horrible or i just let the kid off and it's terrible but i'm thinking oh well when i've got to when i've got to make this decision for five or six kids and that's all of a sudden that's two hours of just being shouted at on the phone and having to defend myself god and i know now looking back that in the long run it would have worked i know it would have worked but it required a shift to the maths department. It probably would work well if this was adopted in all departments, you know, if science get on board, if English get on board and so on. And it needs a united front, but that united front only comes if teachers are on board with it and see the rationale of it. And I think I played a big part in, in, in not kind of selling the dream on this, if that makes sense. So in short, we, we don't do it now in the way that Michaela will do it. So I will still, with year 11s or something like that, when I, when I teach them, I will still bring in this idea of this quiz where we go through it in lessons and then there's a break in time and then they get the same quiz with the same numbers again. But there won't be the high stakes attached to it that, that I pr previously thought there would be. And what I'll revert to more is just the idea of these low stakes quizzes. So just a 10, 10 minutes, 15 minutes at the start of a lesson, perhaps two or three times a week kids marking themselves i don't take in any scores or anything like that so it taught me a lot ollie it, it taught me a lot about the fact that you can have the best initiative in the world but if you don't get your staff on board then you can forget about it in terms of getting pupils and, and parents on board so again some things are brilliant in theory but if you don't deliver the practice well then it's a waste of time so it was it was a again a painful experience but a valuable experience for me if that makes sense definitely Thanks for sharing, Craig. And it's, it's really fascinating to have that kind of world exclusive on, on how it went and, <laughs> and w which elements of it worked and which elements of it didn't work. I did want to ask a follow up question in relation to that. And it's about detentions and, and how you run detentions and, and how they look and, and generally what benefit or otherwise you feel that they have. I've found in the past that often you'll, you'll give a student a detention and, and it's the same students every week. And, you know, depending on how much support you give them within that detention, they may or may not get better at, at study. And, and sometimes it just, as you said, becomes this, this long-term kind of challenge that just goes on and on and on and on and more phone calls to the parents, et cetera, et cetera. How are detentions run at your school? Do you think you do it well? 
do you think you could be doing it better? And, and what advice do you, do you have for people who are trying to work out how to support students to become more motivated for this, this mode? Yeah, it's, I'm no expert on this at all, Ollie. So I don't think we do detentions particularly well, but I've, I've not seen many places that do detentions particularly well. And <laughs> I've read quite a few books on this, so I'm hoping to get, I don't know if you've read the book, When the Adults Change by Paul Dix. It's an absolutely brilliant book on, on behavior. I'd, I'd recommend people to, to read it. Absolutely wonderful book. <laughs> As I'm reading it, Paul in it speaks about all the things that kind of I do and that our, our school t- tends to do as well, but but not in, not in a positive way. So we have like kind of like a, a unit, we call it, which is kind of like the isolation unit and every lunchtime you go in there and it's the same kids in there every time or if you go in there like period three or whatever it's the same kids i'm sure i'm sure kids are organizing to go in there right so kids are saying i'm gonna get chucked out lesson three you're gonna get chucked out lesson three yeah yeah i'll meet you in the unit or you know if it's raining outside where do you want to be do you want to be outside do you want to be in this unit so i might as well get in this unit and like we're in there and kids aren't allowed to talk and stuff and they're kind of sat they've kind of got like desks and you're supposed to look forward but I've never been in there. Is it, let, let's, let me put it this way. It's not exactly the atmosphere of a library in that unit. All the, the, the poor person who's on duty there, they spend the time just saying, shut up, you're not allowed to talk, blah, 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 blah. It's not a positive experience for, for, for anybody. And I'll tell you what's definitely not happening there is, is work being done or any valuable work being done. Because what, what tends to happen if a, if a child gets kind of removed from a class is all right, you'll send them down with some work to do or something. But the whole point of, especially like me, if you're a bit addicted to explicit instruction, is that the teacher actually plays quite a key role in, in helping kids, support kids being able to do that work. And you take the teacher out of it and just replace it with a worksheet. Chances are the kids are not going to be able to be able to, to do anything effectively at all. And they're not in the right mindset to do anything. And we also have, a, I don't know if you have this, Ollie, at your place, but you'll have kind of uh, fixed term exclusions where a kid will do something terrible on a Wednesday or whatever. So all of Thursday, they'll be isolated. They'll be out of lessons and teachers have to send through work for kids to do. But it's the same thing. Firstly, the kid's not in the right mindset to do work. And it's very difficult to come up with some work for a child to do for 60 minutes with with no, or 50 minutes, with no support whatsoever. So I don't, and this is a terrible answer, but I don't know what the solution is here. And I, I'd love to crack detentions. You, you get some schools where, I mean, it's a big thing on, on, on Twitter at the moment about no exclusions and all this. And, and teachers are coming out saying, no, if you're excluding, you're failing kids. And then other teachers say, no, some kids need to be excluded. And listen, I am definitely not one of those people who's saying that you should keep kids in lessons regardless, because I've been there and as I'm sure you, you've been there and listeners will have been there. You've got some kid who, for whatever reason, is off on one today. They are refusing to listen or whatever. And I, what I've done in the past is I've tried absolutely everything to keep that child in that lesson. I've given them all my attention. And what about the other 28 kids? They've had a terrible deal, that lesson. Whereas, again, I hate to say it, I'll be unpopular for saying this, but I'll just say it. Whereas the best thing for the majority is to remove that kid in that moment and then dedicate the rest of my time to the kids who it's a cliche, but who are there, who are behaving, doing what I want them to do, who are eager to learn and so on. And then it's what happens in the aftermath. It's, it's, it's dealing with that student. And for me, the most effective thing has been having a conversation with them, trying to be open and honest, trying to get to the bottom of what their problem is. Is it is it a knowledge thing? It tends to often be a confidence thing. It goes back to this success. A child will say, well, I just didn't know how to do that. So you weren't helping me and you can see him getting frustrated and frustrated. And if I can just sit down and say, okay, well, let me show you how to do it now. And we'll get that, we'll get that kind of knowledge bit out of the way first. Let me show you how to do this now. 
And then we can have a talk about the behavior side of things. And it's the, the classic thing. Why did you react that way? What would have been a better way to react and so on? Listen, I'm no behavior expert whatsoever, but I am certainly not afraid to remove kids in the moment and then kind of deal with it later, as opposed to trying to deal with it there and then, which, which can often, if it's not working after about 30 seconds or a minute, I, kind of warning bells tend to go in my head and think, what, what's my role here? What, what am I best doing? But in terms of detention, I've not, I've not cracked this yet, Ollie. What have you cracked? Just out of interest, my own selfish. Have you cracked detentions? What, what happens at your place? Definitely not. I mean, I mean, last year I we started off with centralized detentions for the maths department. I feel like it did work, and we started from from the start of the year, and it, and it, I think it raised the standard a little bit. But you still have those students who are the repeat offenders and keep coming back. And I think I don't know. My mind's been thinking more to kind of more proactive interventions where. If students do get lower scores on progress checks for a couple of weeks in a row, you really say, all right, well, in study period, instead of you just being in study period and do it work independently, let's bring you into a, a independent unit with some, you know, some teachers mm-hmm. or some, some specialists who are going to work with you one-on-one and really get to the bottom of how you're studying and what's ineffective about it. And then, like you say, if they have some, some experiences with success, they're probably more likely to kind of have more motivation around that. So that's not something we've started, but it's something I've been thinking about a little bit. And I think it could be could be interesting to, to give it a go. What was the name of that book that you mentioned? When the Adults Change by Paul Dix, D-I-X. Absolutely, you'll love it, Ollie. Absolutely brilliant book. All right, great. We'll, we'll make sure to put that in the show notes. The next thing, I'm, I'm just really curious, how do you run exam revision, Craig, based upon all, all, all the things you've learned over the past couple of years? How's that look at your school, look like at your school at the moment? What I'm trying to do now, all is so the first thing I should say, and again, I, I think we spoke about this. Technically, this academic year, I was supposed to be on a, on a secondment from school, but I've been in working with year 11. So actually, my entire year in terms of teaching when I've been in my school has been very much exam focused. So what I really wanted to do was, was think, how can I use all the stuff that I've, I've read about and learned over the last few years? And how can I apply this at the high stakes end? You know, because it's sad to say, but if kids that's how schools, teachers and whatever are ultimately judged in one sense in terms of how these exams turn out and giving kids life chances and all this kind of stuff in terms of their grade. So if if all this stuff isn't actually going to make kids get better grades in their high stakes exam, then ultimately it could be seen as a bit a bit of a waste of time. So I put a lot of thought into this. And, and again, no, no big revelations coming here whatsoever, Ali. It was a lot less reteaching and a lot more retrieval practice. So what it would have been in the past, what it would have been, kids will do a mock exam or whatever. And actually, I'll come back to, to speak about how I change with, with, with exam papers in a second. But it would have been kids will do an exam or whatever. We'll do one of these question level analyses and it'll come back that they're a bit ropey at, at SIRDS or a bit ropey at Pythagoras or whatever. And I would reteach SIRDS or I would reteach Pythagoras. What I tend to do now is a lot more of these low stakes quizzes, a lot, just regular testing. And what I'll do, and I hope this this makes sense, is instead of like, okay, you're a bit rubbish at Pythagoras, so I'm going to teach you Pythagoras for a lesson, and then we're going to practice Pythagoras again for the next lesson, and then we'll move on to the next thing you're a bit ropey at. What I'll do instead is I'll say, okay, you, you didn't get Pythagoras right on this particular exam, so I'm going to build this into today's low stakes quiz, perhaps a couple of questions on it. And then, okay, you're still struggling on that. So I'm just going to do a quick model example of that. And then I'm going to put it on tomorrow's low stakes quiz. And I'm going to put it on Thursday's low stakes quiz and so on and so forth. So 
instead of reteaching, instead of dedicating an entire lesson to reteaching, I'll just model the example of how to do it. And what I find doing this is, is, is much more efficient use of time because more kids are, are coming on board with it. More kids, the success rate is, is, is going up as it starts appearing on these low stakes quizzes. But I'm only dedicating five minutes to the lesson. And the rest of the time, we're doing a similar thing when it comes to fractions of an amount, when it comes to in laws of indices, all this kind of stuff. So it's just a classic thing. Whereas I used to do revision in blocks. Now I'm not teaching him in, in, in blocks as much anymore. I'm, I'm spacing it out of it. So I'm, I'm going to do a similar thing with my revision. I'm going to try and tackle 10 topics in a lesson as opposed to one topic. And I can do that because I know that I'm going to be able to, to, to cover them again and again and again and again in the months coming up to exams. So that's the first thing, more retrieval practice, less reteaching. And the reteaching tends to be modeling as opposed to going into the, the, the kind of depths and the, and the intricacies of things. So that'd be one change. Big, big change has come to problem solving, which we, which we spoke about earlier on. That would, would be when kids are in year 11, which is the, the year they do the GCSEs, I would be giving kids these kind of multi-step problems to do early on. I would do dedicated kind of problem solving lessons with these kind of five, four or five mark questions. And it's a bit of a waste of time. Like in the lesson, kids would be getting it, nodding away. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've got this, sir, got this, sir. It's pretty easy. This, sir, when they tried on their own, absolute disaster because they were following my cues. I was leading them through it. But crucially, they didn't have that knowledge. That foundational knowledge wasn't secure, as we as we spoke about before. And it went back to my belief, which I now think is erroneous, that there was a kind of generic problem-solving skill in maths that just because they solved this particular four-mark four question, they could magically transfer that knowledge to a different domain within mathematics, which I don't think is true anymore. So holding fire on those problem-solving questions until later on in the process, more in the build-up to exams. But I'll, I'll tell you a big one, Ollie, and I, I kind of teased this before, and that's, that's with exam papers. The way Year 11 used to run for me was that kids would come in in September, and the first thing that would be or what happened to them is, hello, welcome to Year 11. This is your past paper schedule for, for the for the year. And it will be a weekly exam paper that kids would have to do, do, do at home every week, hand it in, and the logic behind this was, well, a couple of things, really, to get kids used to working throughout the year as opposed to cramming. And I think there's value in that, definitely. But the bigger one, and it goes back to the, the, the work on deliberate practice that I'm obsessed with, is that the best way to get kids good at answering exam papers is to give them exam papers. And it makes perfect sense. But the more you read about deliberate practice and the more you look in domains outside of teaching, whether it be sport or music or whatever, very rarely does the practice look like the final performance. So what tends to happen, I mean, again, just to use the classic, it's a cliche now, but analogy of a pianist they don't prepare for a, a big performance at a concert by just playing the same piece over and over again they do technical aspects of it they hammer small sections of it footballers don't get good at playing 11 aside 90 minute matches by playing 11 aside 90 minute matches they do drills and so on so for me the kind of analogy that i drew was that the exam is the final performance so the practice shouldn't necessarily look like the final performance it doesn't necessarily make sense just to give kids loads and loads of exam papers and just going back to the football thing, so I think this works quite well, is that if you practice by doing 90-minute 11-a-side football matches, it's very hard, and kids are losing or kids aren't playing well in them, it's quite hard to pinpoint why, because there's so much going on, there's so much out of control um, in that environment. And it's the same with an exam paper. And it only kind of dawned on me this in the last kind of year or so. But you give an a kid an exam paper early on and they get 70% in it. It's quite a big effort 
for you to find out why they've got 70%. And crucially, what can you do to boost that up to 80% and 85%? And what you end up doing is spending ages marking that exam paper, doing one of these question level analysis, which I've got a real big problem with these, a real big problem. I don't know if these are big in Australia, Ollie, but I, I'm not a huge fan of these. So this, this is where, for listeners who don't know, this is where you get an Excel spreadsheet and going down the left-hand side, you've got all the kids' names and going along the top, you've got question one, question two, question three, question four, and you fill in the scores that each kid got on every single question. They take flipping ages. If they're fancy, they'll automatically be colored with conditional format in red, amber, or green. Green if kids have got like four out of four on a question, amber if you've got two out of four, red if it's zero, one out of four. And the idea here is that it allows you to identify patterns. So you look down and you see, oh, question seven, there's a load of reds there. What was question seven? Question seven was on laws of indices. I'm going to reteach my kids laws of indices. Well, there's a few problems with that. The first is it takes flipping ages and we shouldn't overestimate that because the time spent doing that is time that's not being spent either relaxing and actually getting into a frame of mind where you're actually in a fit state to teach or planning better lessons or marking or, or whatever, doing a whole host of other things that are going to be more effective than filling out this spreadsheet. But my my big issue with that, Ollie, and I'm going off on one here, but I, I feel very strongly about this, is the massive overreaction to these question level analyses. So you see question seven, the kid it's on laws of indices, and you assume, oh my God, laws of indices is, my kids are rubbish at it. Let's dedicate two or three lessons to reteaching this laws of indices. Or in fact, it might be just something very specific about the nature of that question. It may have been worded a little bit weird, or it may be a very specific component of, of laws of indices. And you get this kind of overreaction based on these question level analyses that, 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 that I think, I, I don't think is the most useful thing. And the other thing I found, and I don't know if you found this, Ollie, is that if you give kids full exam papers too early, because let's think about the, what, what exam papers are for. They're designed to assess students' knowledge at the end of a course. So if you're giving these exam papers early on, particularly if the kids haven't fully finished the course or they haven't had chance to kind of practice retrieving or, you know, they've only seen a particular topic once or something like that, then we're not expecting them to get full marks. But what I tended to find happens is kids will get 70% on the first week. And then maybe I'd do like a question level analysis and a response start or something. Next week, what would they get? Oh, about 70% again. Or maybe, or up to 71%, or we're making a bit of progress, but then next week it's down to 69 And it would they wouldn't tend to just be making this progress, or be incredibly gradual progress. And I think that's because the kids themselves didn't know what they needed to do to get better. They were just answering the questions that they were good at and they liked. They were leaving out the same kind of questions again and again. The multi-step questions were causing a whole host of problems because that knowledge wasn't secure and they couldn't plot the path to, to the solution and so on. So it became a bit of a fruitless exercise. So I think exam papers have a place, but it's much later in the process for me. It's the last couple of months. So we have our exams in kind of May. I think exam papers, in terms of practice, they have their use about January or February. That's that's when it kicks in for me. Whereas in the past, I've brought them in far too early. So what we've done instead, I've experimented with goal-free exam papers. So I think this is an interesting idea. I speak about goal-free problems in the book, and this is a kind of spin-off of cognitive load theory. The idea that a goal-specific problem, particularly one of these multi-markers, will be, here's a diagram. What is the length of AB? Let's go back to 3D trig. Imagine it's a 3D trig problem. And to get from that 
a starting point to the specific goal, it's flipping. There's loads of stuff going on. There's loads of steps. There's flipping miles that the kids need to go to to get there. And it's daunting for kids, and they can't they can't juggle all the steps. And even if they get successfully to the end, they've exhausted so much cognitive energy getting there that they've nothing left to kind of step back and think. How did I get there? Why did I do that? What did I do? What did I do next? I, I find that they then can't transfer the solution to that problem to help them solve a related problem um, next week or next month or whatever. So these goal-specific problems that litter exam papers, I think there's a danger of using those too early for the exact same reason as, as problem solving. So goal-free effect says instead, let's remove that specific goal. And let's say to students, okay, here's your picture. What can you work out? And therefore, it goes back to success again. The taste of success is closer. It doesn't feel this far distant goal anymore. It's, it's closer. So kids can work out the size of an angle. And they're not cognitively knackered. I mean, that's my phrase. I don't know if that's in the literature. They're, they're not cognitively knackered by that point. So they've got... They've got enough to say, okay, what have I done there? How did I work that angle out? All right, what am I going to do next? As opposed to trying to plot this meandering path to the solution. I'm really, I'm really curious because I've, I've had a play with these goal-free problems, mm. and I tried, tried them with parabolic motion, which was, you know, when I interviewed John Sweller, he said that was a domain in which they were perfectly perfect to use, right? And I, and I gave them a crack, mm. and really, it just totally flopped. Like it just did not work at all, <laughs> and I ended up all the students going, "That was a waste of time, sir." And and I said, okay, well, I'll just I'll just do what I usually do next lesson and break it down into small steps and teach you explicitly, and then they could all do parabolic motion after that. Is it working for you? Are you, are you having some positive positive effects? Yeah, listen, Ollie, I've, I've been there myself. I think there's there's a couple of things with it. I I would definitely teach by breaking it down to steps, model explicitly, and again, I, I speak about in the book my my kind of four stage process for the deliberate practice. God, it'd be good if I could remember it now, but it's somewhere on the lines of isolate the skills, so split it down into its component parts, atomize it as much as possible, develop the skill, and I do that using intelligent practice and the principles of a variation theory, final performance, put it all together, and then assess practice retrieval at a later date. So definitely when I'm teaching, I would do it that way. But I think golfing problems have a place when it comes to kind of assessments or kids, kids trying things independently. There's a few dangers with them, though, and um, and they're certainly not suitable for all topics because you want kids actually practicing the skill that you is important to the question. And I've left them too vague in the past. Like, what, what can you work out? And particularly, like, geometry tends to be fine. But if it's some kind of number-based problem, what can you work out? Kids are working out flipping things that are absolutely nothing to do with the question, which is potentially interesting. But if the ultimate goal is, and I think this is the ultimate goal, is that, that within their workings, they actually get to what the final answer is then if they're off on a million tangents, then it, it, it's, not, it's not going to be successful for that. But I'll tell you what, we, we, have, we have had success with this, Ollie, and that's, that's in, a, in a really interesting way. So goal-free mocks was one. So that would be where we would take a past exam paper and we would, all the one mark and two mark questions, we just leave exactly as they are. But our three mark questions, three marks and above, we, we change the goal free questions. So we'll literally strip out the specific goal and make them goal free. And we'll only do this, as I just spoke about, when, when it's relevant. So it worked particularly well with geometry questions, but it'll also work surprisingly well with some number questions and some, some of the algebra questions. In fact, data questions, it, it tends to work particularly well, particularly those ones where you have to do things like who performed best on average or which was more, more consistent. If you remove that, and say, what can you actually work out about the data? And you get kids working out the mean, the median, the mode, the range, the interquartile range or whatever. You can then 
when they've got all that working out, say, okay, what does this tell us? As opposed to kids who are like, what does consistent mean? I'm just going to leave out that question. So it's been really valuable in terms of getting kids to participate more in the questions w- w- within these kind of goal-free marks. So that's okay. that's been one one kind of one kind of massive thing. And again, I, I always make the point: a blank page tells you nothing. If a kid just leaves something out entirely, what on earth do you know? Whereas if I can get them actually answering more questions, then for me that that's almost like game over there. That's almost the justification for doing it if more kids are answering questions. So a massive fan of, of the kind of goal-free marks for that. And I think that is a, a better way to ease students into past exam papers than going straight in with, this is what the actual exam is going to look like in, in May, full of all these potentially daunting goal-specific problems. Mm. So yeah, goal-free marks, goal-free marks have been a big one. And then the other thing I'll just quickly mention, Ollie, is that our our numeracy coordinator in our school, Gaz, he does a thing called question of the week. And this is where in the past he's taken a goal specific problem, whether it be a past exam paper question or something from Enrich or something like that, pins it up on the mass corridor and kids from all year groups can submit their answer. And there's like a little draw at the end of the week and a prize and all that kind of thing. Cool. Yeah, well, having read my book, and he, he was actually forced to read my book. It's kind of le- a legal requirement if you if you work in my school that you have to read my book. So after I forced Gaz to do it, he changed the uh, experiment by changing these goal-specific question of the week to goal-free ones. And what he found was two things. The first thing he found was more kids were entering them. And again, that, that relates to exactly what I was saying to the goal-free marks. I think it's less daunting to have something like what can you work out or what can you find as opposed to seeing something and thinking actually if i can't immediately plot my way to the finish i might not actually attempt this question and i know not every child's going to think like that but kids who haven't tasted success kids who have been have quite a negative conception of mathematics whose confidence is pretty low i can understand that mindset whereas if it's what can you work out? Well, actually, I can work out this thing. Well, but, all right, I'm going to have a go. And once you're up and running, once you kick that, kick started the process, oh, now I've got this. Actually, I can probably work out this thing as well. So more kids are participating, and that's a massive bonus. Mm. But also, when you look at the actual answers, more, ki- more kids, or even the majority of kids, are actually getting the answer to the goals, original goal-specific problem within their workings. So again, it then is quite a nice thing for the teacher to do. It's almost like the big reveal. When, I, when you say, well, actually, the actual question was this. Have a look at your work. Who's actually worked that out? It's really good for the kids to see, actually, I've worked it out. And I just think kids are participating more, but kids are learning from the process more as well mm. because, again, the, the, these steps seem more manageable. So to go back to your original point, when I first read about this, Ollie, I was obsessed with it. I was using it for everything. And, and I was using it within my instruction. And I don't think that's the place for it. I think it has a part to play, a, quite a key role to play in terms of whether you call it assessment or just kind of practice. I think that that's where it has a role to play. And since the book came out, I mean, I'm, I'm really pleased. I mean, quite a few kind of websites sprung up based on the book. And one of them that if you want to uh, chuck a, a link to in your show notes is a guy called Pete Matic. He set up the website. I think it's called goalfreeproblems.wordpress.com. I'll, I'll double check that. He's been tight there. If he'd have paid an extra £10, he could have got rid of the WordPress thing in the domain, but, but he hasn't. I think it's called goalfreeproblems.wordpress.com. And basically, he's got a collection of well over 100 of these goal-free problems on there, sorted by number algebra and all that kind of thing. And I've been contacted by quite a few teachers who've been, who've been using goal-free marks, who've been taking some of the new specification GCSE papers and making them into this goal-free variety, either to use as marks 
or to just use as kind of problem solving questions at the end. And, and I've I found it really, really beneficial. And also in primary school as well, whenever I've been lucky enough to speak to primary school teachers, the feedback from there is that actually, yeah, this is this has got more kids having a go at questions. So yeah, I, th- I think it's got a role to play, Ollie. I'd recommend giving it another go, but being very careful about the topic you choose and separating it from the instruction and moving it more to the practice, if that makes sense. All right, that does make sense. And I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll take the questions that I originally gave the students within their instruction, because it was about two months ago now, and they should know this stuff pretty solidly by now, and I'll I'll give it to them again, and I'll report back. <laughs> nice. <laughs> should be it should be interesting. We might we might zoom out to the the school level now if that's all right, Craig. Sure. You you mentioned how it's a policy that all all teachers must read your books, but I was wondering what other. <laughs> I was wondering one, to what extent have teachers at the school at which you work taken up the kind of instructional approaches that that you 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 use and you endorse, and two, how have you kind of facilitated that well and or not so well, and what have you learned through the process? Yeah, good good question. So I I spoke about how the the quiz homework quiz was a disaster. And that that was a learning curve for me. It goes back to quick wins. I think that that was your kind of definition of not a quick win. That was a quick defeat if anything doing the quiz thing. So it's like I, you see an immediate effect and it's absolutely horrendous. So I need I need them to see quick wins. So I'll tell you what has been a good one. Has been and we spoke about this in the first interview has been the worked examples the, the, the silent teacher thing. That surprisingly and i say surprisingly because i wasn't convinced that was going to work that is a relatively quick win when you when you try that with a class and you get kids in absolute silence following something and i think you always get a honeymoon period with it because it's it's novel for the kids so the first time they're seeing this they are actually concentrating and, and putting a real load of effort into this Whenever they do that, teachers try that with classes for the first time. They report back and say, actually, that was really effective. I got kids listening more. Kids weren't asking loads of questions for help. They were more successful with it. When we went into the practice questions, it was good. So picking something like that, that's going to be a relatively quick win, has has been important. And, And that has been fairly widely adopted. Not by, I'd say all teachers have tried it. Not every teacher uses it for every time they introduce a new concept, which is absolutely fine. But that has been something that's been fairly widely adopted. And whenever I do kind of training and visit other teachers and I ask for feedback a couple of months later, that tends to be the one that's stuck. This idea of how I present examples, teachers tend to kind of bring a fair bit of, of that into their, into their practice. But I'll tell you what I found important, Holly, and it's, it's, it's pretty obvious this, but it's one thing me standing up in a departmental meeting saying this is an idea this is how to do it blah 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 it's a completely other thing if you can get another teacher on board so if i can work with another colleague in the weeks leading up to when i'm about to introduce something and say try this with your class and then actually either together or better still they can run the session then that's far more powerful because that's then other teachers are watching that thinking actually they've They've, they've taken it, they've read the book, they've tried this. And especially if they're saying, well, this worked, but this didn't work, so I changed this and it changed that. That I think is particularly powerful. And it's a classic, it's the same with kids. Like so much of what works effectively for teachers is exactly the same as works effectively for kids. That's why during show call, it's one thing when I model how to do an example, but if I can see excellence around the class that has been produced by a student and I can show that to the rest of the class, the kids are like, all right, one of us has done that. 
and it looks like that. I can aspire to that. Whereas if it's just the teacher doing it, it's not as powerful. And it's the same thing in departmental meetings. If colleagues can look at another colleague and say, well, they'd never even heard of this up until three weeks ago. And now they're doing it in their lessons and it's going down really well. Well, I can do that as well. So I think that's important. I think my lessons have been find a relatively quick win, try and get a colleague on board first to do it. And the other one, and I spoke about this with Harry Fletcher Wood when I interviewed him. And I also, I make this a really, really key point. I say this at the start of every training session I deliver to teachers. And I say this at the end of every training session. And that is, don't try and do too much at once. And I'm obsessed mm. with this, Ollie. And I, I am absolutely obsessed with it. And I think, I think maybe we even spoke about it and when we were during our interview. And the more I think about this, the more important it is. So like, there's a danger that you could come to one of my training sessions, hopefully have a decent time. And then the next day you go in and firstly, you're ripping down all your classroom displays because I'm, I'm trying to ban all those. Next thing you're saying to the kids, right, we're going to do this bit in absolute silence. And the kids are like, what's going on here? Next thing, right, here's some intelligent practice. Now here's a goal-free problem. Now here's a diagnostic question. Firstly, the kids are like, what the hell's going on here? So it's too much for them to take in. But more importantly, it's too hard for the teacher because, again, I'm obsessed with experts and novices and all this kind of thing. And I think actually, Ollie, I think maybe you linked to this, or, or certainly I think I saw you commenting on this, the study about where expert teachers or experienced teachers, where their eyes look in a classroom environment compared to a novice teacher, how expert teachers are, are looking at different things and are better at kind of identifying potential areas of trouble and all this kind of stuff, where the, the novices. And what I find interesting about this is that's because that's been automated. They've got so much past experience to fall upon. They've, they've almost got like a sixth sense of where to look and so on. And the thing is, whenever you've been teaching for a, for a long time, you automate a load of the basics stuff. You don't even have to think about it. Even something like questioning, it becomes kind of natural, the right questions to ask. A, a good one for me is the amount of time to leave between asking a question and answering. I find you just get better and better and better at this. But then the problem is whenever you go on a training course and you learn seven new things and you try to bring them in, then all of a sudden you're a novice again. This stuff isn't a routine. It hasn't been, you haven't automated it or whatever. So if you're then having to stand in front of kids and say, right, I'm going to do silent teacher now. Now, what on earth does silent teacher look like? Then all of a sudden your working memory is absolutely rammed full of trying to get through silent teacher. Then you're asking a diagnostic question. Then you're doing a goal three problem. You're cognitively knackered by the end of it. Mm. And it's just, it's not good for you as a teacher. And, at the, and the other problem is, Ollie, that at the end of the lesson, say that lesson's a disaster. Why is it a disaster? Which one of the seven variables that you changed caused it not to go so well? Or Definitely. if it works well, which one of the seven variables was the thing that made it go well? So I always say to teachers now, pick one thing, hammer that one thing for at least three weeks until you get to the point where you can do that. It is part of your routine and kids come to expect it. And if that is silent teacher, then fine. Just run with that. Don't do any, don't go near a goal-free problem. Don't go near a diagnostic question. Don't go near intelligent practice. Just run with that until that becomes routine. And then when it is, then if you want to pick a second thing to introduce, then, then go for it. So that's been the other big learning curve for me, Ollie. Too much is just an absolute disaster. Best to pick one thing that's ideally a quick win, get another colleague to demonstrate it and run with that for a few weeks. So that, that's been kind of my learning curve in terms of successful adoption. Wonderful, wonderful advice there, Craig. Hi, Craig. It's John Fraser. Sorry, changing tack, tacked a little here. When we last spoke with you, you talked about the impact that Why Students Hate School by Daniel W. had on you, and I got hold of it, and I'm on my second way through it and loving it. 
And I've also picked up on Geogebra from your book and enjoying that a lot, and also Tarsia. I was wondering if there are any other sort of blockbusters that you could mention or that you may have come across. A couple of specific questions. Ollie and I were talking about online videos of exemplary teaching, whether there are any you'd come across that you, you might be able to recommend. And the other one, I guess the two-part, second part, I've got very excited about the Wolfram suite of products recently, so Mathematica, System Modeler, Alpha Pro, and also the programming one. Whether you'd had any experience with those or if you could point me in the direction of someone you're aware of who has you know, developed stuff around Wolfram you know, to particular topics, et cetera, you know, within the maths curriculum. Yeah. So Wolfram, I wouldn't be a, a big expert at all, unfortunately. The one thing I will say is that about maybe five years ago, I got absolutely obsessed with Wolfram Alpha and I started building, you can build widgets with them. I, I don't know if you've dabbled with this, but you can essentially, so in there, in the Wolfram search engine, obviously you can put in any calculation, it'll do it and so on. But you can actually build specific widgets where you can, for example, a pathetic one would be, you can enter two sides of a triangle and it'll work out the hypotenuse or, or the hypotenuse is another side and it'll work out the other one by kind of programming it in and i put all these on my on my website and they're, they're still there now and and what i tended to find was it was a really good way for kids for checking answers to homework because wolfram won't show you the steps unless you're a, a premium subscriber but if these widgets were built in a really in a, in a nice way and they were really it only takes kind of five minutes per widget then it was absolutely brilliant for kids for, for checking homework because they could check their answer it didn't show them their working. So if they were just writing down their answer, I, I knew that the kids were just kind of firing it, firing it up on the on the computer. But that was that that was really successful. And in fact, I'm glad you've reminded me of that. That that's something I, I want to revisit actually, because I'm a massive believer in kids having access to answers, whether it be practice questions, whether it be homeworks. I don't want them making mistakes and repeating those mistakes without getting the feedback that answers give. So I think Wolfram's, uh, Wolfram's very, very good for that kind of thing. And God almighty, I always have it as a tab on my computer, particularly when I'm teaching A-level, because it's brilliant for coming up with examples or, or checking answers and so on. But I, I wouldn't know too much more about Wolfram, um, I'm afraid. But just to pick up on, I, th I think you said something re really interesting um, about kind of video practitioners and so on and, and making the use of videos and I, I spoke about this just briefly in an answer to a previous question i think there's, there's a danger that videos become not much better than re reading revision guides i think you can you can we all kind of know that reading a revision guide and highlighting isn't an effective way to get good at maths because it feels familiar. You just read in notes and you think, oh yeah, I get this. I'll highlight that word, blah, 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 blah. But unless you're actually doing maths, there's no way of knowing whether you're good and you're not benefiting from the testing effect. I think there's a danger that videos fall into the same category. They're slightly better in the fact that they're a bit more dynamic and there's modeling going on and so on. But I've seen kids who will just watch a 10 minute video, a really well presented 10 minute video and think that they've revised. And if you say to them, do you understand that? They go, yeah, of course I do. And they do, they, they follow it, but just in the same way that they would follow me modeling something. But the modeling part is just 50% of it. Unless they have the practice that follows it up, it's a waste of time. So what I say to kids now, and I'll, I'll mention some of my favorite practitioners in a second, is, if you're not pausing the video regularly, you are wasting your time watching it. So I have, I say to them, get your finger hovered by the pause button. And if they're good videos, the teacher will ask questions and prompt kids to pause. But I say to kids, at regular points, pause it and ask yourself two questions. Let's say it's a, a female teacher on the video. Why has she done that? 
what is she going to do next? And if you ask yourself those two questions, and they're the questions I want kids asking during silent teacher, why has he done that? What's he going to do next? Then it becomes a much more interactive experience for the students and they're thinking hard. And then of course, they need whether it be practice questions within the video or practice questions afterwards to do. So videos can be really, really powerful, but I think they can be a very passive form of media unless kids are actively getting involved with them. And um, my two favorites, so like kind of Colin Hegarty was the kind of first kind of pioneer of, of, of videos that, that I saw um, in the UK doing it whole whole scale. So he now has Hegarty Math, which is a premium website, but the vast majority of his old videos are on are on YouTube if you just Google Hegarty Math. I, I interviewed him years and years and years ago when I used to do the Tes Maths podcast. And he was a great believer in flipped learning. So they did their entire, we have a, an A-level course that we used to call Decision One, which is all about algorithms. You've got traveling salesperson, the Chinese postman algorithm. It's a brilliant course. And he, he taught that all via videos. So kids would watch the videos before the lesson, take notes on them, and then the lesson would be about solving problems and the teacher helping and so on. So the classic flipped learning. And that worked really, really well because of the quality of the videos and because of the culture that, were, that was kind of put into place. So, so Colin is absolutely beautiful videos, absolutely brilliant. And the other one, which I think Ollie's familiar with, is John Corbett, Corbett Maths. So I would say Corbett has the single best collection of worksheets I have ever seen in my life, all completely free. John Corbett's textbook exercises are a joke how good they are. It, sh it should be illegal how good they are. I don't know why he's not charging for these. They're flipping out of this world. So he has kind of practice questions for every topic you can imagine, which are exam questions. But he has textbook questions which have skill-based practice, but then kind of interleaved practice where he brings in other areas of mathematics in there. And then every single one of those has a video alongside it, which like my kids absolutely love. And you can just access them straight from the website. Just Google Corbett Maths. And then the final one I'll speak about, and this is kind of a new kid on the block, is, is Jamie Frost, Dr. Frost Maths. And he's just started doing videos in these last couple of months. And he, he's an ambitious guy. Like he's, his PowerPoints are out of this world. So if you go on Dr. Frost Maths, um, his lesson PowerPoints are phenomenal. They're extreme. I've never seen harder maths in my entire life. Like he teaches at a school called Tiffin School, which is a high-performing independent school. If I see year seven on one of his PowerPoints, I immediately kind of add four-year groups to it for, for, for my kids because he's flipping. Eight. And if it's year 11 PowerPoints. I don't have a clue what's going on in them. They're flipping as about as hard as anything you've ever seen. So he has wonderful PowerPoints. He has a wonderful kind of online free uh, homework site. And again, it is free and he's going to keep it free where kids can answer past exam questions or it marks it independently, all this, all this automatically, all this kind of stuff. But he started doing videos. And his videos are brilliant. So he's, he's, he's used the idea from number file of the classic brown paper. And it's shot in a really nice way. It's kind of a camera just over his head. You can see a bit of his head. It's brown paper. He's got a big marker pen and he's going through it and he's worked examples and he's pausing and he's asking questions and so on. But again, it just goes back to my previous point. If you're just watching them, you're learning nothing. But if you're doing those videos and then kind of doubling that up by trying the associated questions on on Dr. Frost's website, then it's the kind of best of both worlds. So yeah, they, they would be my kind of top three video practitioners, if that makes sense. I think what John may have also been referring to is like, for example, Doug Lemore's videos where you're watching a teacher use a certain <sighs> strategy. Are you aware of any videos like that other than Doug Lemore's? Yeah, it's a good one. Off the top of my head, Ollie, 
I'm not. They used to. <laughs> now this is this is going back. This is going back. So they when I first started teaching, kind of oh god, 13 years ago. There's a thing called Teachers TV, and it was the big thing. It was government funded thing, and it was exactly what, what it sounds like. Teachers TV. Let's just say the viewing figures were, were not going through the roof for that. It used to be on kind of like in the middle of the night, and you you could tape it and so on. And there was two types of programs on there. There's the kind of programs that you would show your kids in class. So it would be kind of like real life maths and all this kind of stuff. But then there'd be pedagogical programs. So it would be like an outstanding maths lesson or a teacher's change throughout a year and so on. And they were brilliant. Now, you can still get them. The, the, the project's been, been kind of scrapped now, but it's some of the best material I've, I've seen. And if you just Google teachers TV, probably took a UK in if, you, if you're down under just be on the safe side teachers tv uk videos you'll see i mean they're a bit <laughs> they're a bit cringy we're talking kind of early 2000s stuff there's some hairstyles and some some clothing going on in those videos but if you can get over that the actual kind of pedagogy material is is, is really really strong but as you say doug lemov stuff is 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 particularly strong not just for the video itself but for the kind of commentary that that, that goes with it and yeah i think that's that's pretty hard to beat fantastic if we come back to the school level, you talked a little bit before about your kind of aversion to what we would call down here Goodman charts, you know, the item analysis where you've got the red and oh, the green yes, boxes yeah. and the ones and the zeros and, and, and whatever. And I, I'm, you know, I'm definitely with you on that. But there were a lot of schools that put a lot of effort into this and a lot of teachers who were sinking a lot of time into these spreadsheets. So mm. if your school isn't collecting that kind of a data, what kind of data are you collecting it and how are you, you using that data to better improve student learning? Yeah, look, it's a tricky one, Ollie. And I appreciate that teachers and schools are, well, teachers in particular, the hands are tied by whatever the, 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 the kind of senior leadership or the, the kind of school policy is. So look, I still have to collect that data. I still have to, I still have to fill it in. I still have to put it on the spreadsheets. The question I always ask, and I, I do this whenever I give a talk, and it's one of my favorite things to do now. I, I put up one of these spreadsheets and I say, just have a look at that. And it's, it's, it's beautiful. Like it's got the reds, the greens, the ambers. It's got so much data in. It probably represents about 100 hours work for me and probably more for, more for the kids. I put it on the screen and I say to teachers, imagine you had 50 lessons left to teach that class. Where would you start? And you look at it and you just, you feel sick. It's just too much data. Too much data. It doesn't tell you anything. It's, it's absolute data overload. So I'm going to be entirely honest here, Ollie. I do it because I have to do it. I have to fill in that kind of stuff. But I mean, Tom Sherrington, who I was lucky enough to into, he has the classic point, and it's it's, a, it's the first time it, the first time I heard him say this. It was a, it was a bit of a game changer for me. He said that imagine if you went into school one day and overnight all your data systems had been wiped. How long would it take? before a kid suffered? Or how long would it take before one of your students noticed anything different? And I don't think they would, Ollie. Like, I know my kids' strengths and weaknesses. And how do I know them? I know them from teaching them every day. I know them through formative assessments. And the other thing is, Ollie, and this, I think this is, this is a really, really important point to make, and I hope this comes across right. I think there's two problems with when you start committing data to kind of spreadsheets. The first is that it's, it distorts the view of it in kids' minds. They see it as being permanently recorded. So all of a sudden, things start to become assessment more than learning. Whereas I say to kids, uh, we talked about diagnostic questions in the previous interview. When I'm doing diagnostic questions, I say to kids, none of this is being recorded anywhere. Like this is between me and you. So if you get something wrong, 
I just want to know about it. I'm not going to put this on a spreadsheet. It's not going to count towards your end of year grade or anything like that. And it just enables, again, what Doug Lemoff calls the culture of error. Kids are more willing to, to kind of speak about things and, and be more open and honest with errors if they know it's, it's not going to be recorded. But the second reason that I think is, is, is problematic is because of this kind of this overreaction that I, that I spoke about before. Whenever you do a do one of these things and, and, and you, you find out that kids are weak in a particular area, what you're observing there is performance, right? It's your classic thing for performance. Kids have performed badly in that moment. So you make an assumption that they need a load of intervention in that particular thing. Whereas we know, Ollie, that observing performance in one moment of time is a really bad proxy for learning. So as soon as I commit things to data, to a spreadsheet, I'm almost forcing myself to start looking at performance. So I'm looking at single data points. Whereas if instead I can not overreact too much to that and crucially make sure I test that several times in low stakes quizzes, starters, diagnostic questions, then I start to get a better understanding of learning as opposed to performance. So I'll tell you the data I collect, and this sounds biased, it sounds like I'm a dodgy salesman, but it's all completely free. So hopefully your listeners won't think too badly of me. But on diagnostic questions, I like to set one diagnostic questions quiz each week for kids to complete on kind of laptop, tablets, we've got an app, all that kind of thing. And what that actually does is every single question is tagged to a really specific area of mathematics. And what I'm working on at the moment, but it'll probably be another kind of four or five months away, is instead of actually tagging it to something like adding fractions, I'm going to tag each of the answers to a specific misconception that that particular choice of answer reveals. And what, what you can do at the moment, and what this is going to enable us to do when I tag it to misconceptions, is for each kid or for each class or for each cohort, you get what I call a knowledge map. Um, and it's kind of a wheel and it's got all the different areas of mathematics represent different segments on the wheel and they're shaded green, amber, red. Now, whenever I show this to teachers, they're like, well, you've just taken a question level analysis or, or whatever you call it and made it into a wheel instead. What, what do you want a medal for this or something? You know, you're big hypocrite. But for me, why this is powerful is because this isn't, if something's shaded red, that isn't one question that's red. That is a specific skill that's red. That may, and that data may have come from 10, 15, 20 questions over the course of six months, one year, mm. two years, however, however long you've been reading it. So the message I give to kids now is our aim, and this is corny as anything, but I quite like it. Learning for me is trying to get that knowledge map green. That's how I visualize what learning is. So if I've got 50 lessons left with the year 11 class, and I look at this knowledge map and I see three red areas, then goal one is to get those red areas amber. So I'm gonna do that by potentially reteaching and modeling, but I'm also gonna do it by making sure kids have a go at questions in that area over the period of three weeks. So they're going to get one in a, a daily low stakes quiz. They're going to get it in a weekly homework. And I'm going to try and change the red to amber. Then I'm going to change, try and change the amber to green. And that for me is visualizing learning. That for me is making use of data because things are tagged to skills, not specific questions. So I'm observing performance over time, which for me is a much better proxy for learning than kind of these snapshot things, if that makes sense. So that for me is far more useful data than any spreadsheet will ever be. So if you're running a school, that's the kind of level data you'd, you'd want to be collecting. 
Yeah, I think so. And no doubt I'd be obliged to come up with some kind of target levels and tracking and flight path and all this nonsense. For, for Again, but only because parents are used to it, but only because parents expect it. But God, Ollie, you know as much as me and everyone listens to this knows it's a flipping joke trying to predict what, a, like, how ridiculous is that? Trying to predict what a kid in year 10 is going to get on their GCSE exam in two years time. What a flipping joke. And we all know this, right? What you can't do, you can't give, you can't say that there are level 7C, whatever the hell that means, at Christmas. And then you can't suddenly say, because they do bad at a test, that they've dropped down to a 6A in Easter. Because what does that mean? They've not just not learned anything, you've actually reduced their knowledge. You as a teacher in the last three months have somehow taken things out of their brain and reduced their knowledge. But th that's what the tests would show. Like if you're trying to level a test, it would show that on that particular test, they got a level 6C. So what are you supposed to do? Well, you have two options as a teacher. Well, maybe, maybe three options as a teacher. One is that you're brave and you put level 6C, but then you're going to have to explain to parents, your line manager, why, why your kid is regressed and that's not an ideal conversation to have particularly if there's some kind of performance related pay or something like that attached to it so that's not ideal your second option is you just do what some teachers do you adjust the grade boundaries so all of a sudden you don't need quite as much to get a level 6c so all of a sudden those 6c suddenly become 6a's or you do what i've done for most of my career and this is terrible but i'll just say it is that kids just don't go backwards if kids according to the data, have gone backwards. You just put them as, as the same. You just put them as a 7C. And whenever you're asked to justify it, you say, okay, they underperformed on that test. But as I know my students, I know that that was just an off day and the blah, 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 and they've done well on this homework and so on. But you're just playing a game. You're just playing an absolutely pointless game. And the other thing as well, Ollie, do you have this in your place? Like kids have targets on the front of their books. Or you say to a kid, what's your target in math? They'll tell you in year nine what their target's going to be in year 11. Why waste the time putting a such a firstly putting a ceiling on a kid's ambition? And even if you have aspirational targets, well, who's to say a kid can't go beyond that aspiration? But the flip side of that is, what happens if a kid isn't meeting their particular target in a given topic? Like imagine me, I was pretty good at maths. Say my target's a grade nine, like the top grade for GCSE. I do one of these flipping 3D trigonometry tests, and all of a sudden I'm coming out with a grade three or something because I can't see me right angle triangle. How does that make me feel? So what, all of a sudden, I'm six grades underachieving. I feel pretty crap about myself there. So I think we've got, it just honestly, we're obsessed with day trolley. And I don't, I don't know, I don't know who it's for. I don't know why we're doing it. I don't know why we're doing it. Again, I don't know if it's the same with you, but I, I'm over it, Ollie. I'm over it. I'd rather have this more formative stuff that actually will help me help kids get better as opposed to this just target, target nonsense. Well, what's it like for you, Ollie? Are you with me on this or are you a bit target obsessed in your place? No, no, I, I'm, definitely, I'm definitely with you. And something I feel really lucky about is to be in the position where I have the freedom to kind of specify what data we should and shouldn't be collecting within the team. And that being the case, kind of the, the only data we collect is progress checks. If a student gets below or above 50%, and then we think, all right, well, we need to have an intervention with this student, mm. we don't. And then we do do item analysis on tests, but we only do it for the multiple choice questions because we've got a great app called ZipGrade, which automatically does it. I actually, I do it with progress checks as well, but it's really quick. I'm not sure if I talked about this when you interviewed me or not, but our item analysis for progress checks just looks like you write up, they say there's 10 questions on the progress check. You just write on the board, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and you say, who got question one right? And all the students put their hand up. Ah, yes. Who got question two right? Put your hand up. And, you know, you'll see two or three questions on the progress check that only three or four students in the class got right. 
And so you repeat them on the next on the next test. And that takes two two minutes instead of, you know, half an hour to an hour putting ones and zeros into a spreadsheet. So I I think that's, you know, a, a, kind of the best of both worlds, hopefully. Nice to meet I like you. that. I like that. I guess I guess building on that, the thing I'm most interested in and the thing I'm really keen to develop more is is moving away from teachers identifying weak and strong points for students and then and then mm. feeding them new questions or even or even the new new aids kind of technologically based one where students are just kind of clicking buttons, making selections and then getting fed questions. But I want to actually work out how to develop students to the point that they can monitor their own progress, work mm. out what their own weak points are, and then find their own questions to ameliorate, yeah. you know, those misconceptions and those knowledge gaps. And that's what I'm that's that's what I've been thinking about a lot recently and hopefully I'd like to get to a point where I can somehow get my students there. I'm not there yet, but it's something to work on. Just two two things on that very, very quickly, Ali. So first is again, dodgy salesman hat on here. So diagnostic questions for me is great for that because kids can access their own knowledge map and they can focus on their areas of red and then amber and so on. So I think that's great. That works really, really well. But also I use your technique, Ollie, and I, I'm spreading this around the UK. Your idea of your kind of revision card things where, where kids kind of fill out when they get a low stakes quiz or an assignment back and they copy the question down that they got wrong on one side, flip side, they write down the area, what mistake they made, and and then a modeled solution to it. For me, that's perfect for that because then you've got this stack of revision cards, which which identifies is personalized to the student areas that they've struggled with in the past. And if, if they get one of the cards right, it goes to the bottom. If they get it wrong, it goes halfway along. Totally. Honestly, Ollie, I think that's a game changer. That I think you need to patent that or something. You, this could make your fortune out of this. I'm, I'm a big, big fan of that. Thanks, Craig. Nice of you to say. All right, next question. It's, it's, been, a few, it's been a few months since your book came out. But I know you're a guy who listens, reads, talks to lots of people and thinks a lot. And you've, you know, you've presented probably about 100, 150,000 million conferences over the, the past <laughs> summer. And I'm sure you've had lots of feedback on the book as well. So I'm wondering, what have you changed your mind about since the book came out? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I've been thinking about this a lot. So when I give a talk, if it's kind of a general talk, it tends to, yeah, the title will be How I Wish I Taught Maths, and it'll be like three months on or four months on. And I think now the book came out in January, so we're up to kind of six six months after the book came out now. There's nothing that I have fundamentally changed my mind on. And the big ideas of the book, I still firmly believe in. The, the importance of cognitive load theory, I think is, and just the practical things of that, I just think you'd be mad not because they, they're not dependent on style of teaching or anything like that in terms of presentations of powerpoints again distractions knowledge of working memory i think that's that's just fundamental I, again i i believe in that even more than i did when, when i wrote it formative assessments i've been a big fan of for years i'm still a big big believer in the use of diagnostic questions my belief in problem solving and the dangers of doing it too early hasn't changed a, a great deal at all. In fact, again, I probably believe in that a little bit more the more I've more I've read about it. Bjork's work on desirable difficulties and my kind of cautious approach to that, the fact that not to interleave too early, to give kids a taste of success before the difficulties kick in. I'm a big, big believer of that. And I think I was I was right to be cautious in the book. I didn't fully buy into buy into that hundred percent. View on kind of purposeful practice, the idea that you can kind of get good at key skills whilst 
in a kind of problem solving arena. I'm a, I'm a big believer in that. And things that have developed kind of since the book. So I mentioned the goal free problems website. I launched my SSDD problems website, which has had kind of a quarter of a million teachers have used in the last kind of couple of months. And I've had questions submitted from all around the world on that. I'm dead proud of that. My massive Venn diagram website that's kind of sprung up from the book. I'm proud of that. But I'll tell you the thing that has surprised me, Ollie. And that is my stuff on variation theory and, and intelligent practice. And I've not really spoke about this kind of in a public arena. I've, I've mentioned it at a few kind of conferences and stuff that I've been doing. But I did not expect that to be controversial at all. I thought because so just for a bit of background here, the idea is taken a very small part of variation theory. And it's taken the part that suggests that if you can keep as much possible the same in one example, and vary something for the next example, then students' attention is drawn to the thing that's changed and the impact it then has on the answer. And therefore, you're directing attention to the kind of most important part of a question, whether it be the gradient on a straight line, whether it be the percentage multiplier in a, a number-based question or something like that, as opposed to what I used to do, which was just random questions. So it would be plot y equals 2x plus 3, plot y equals 4x minus 7, or increase 30 by 20%, increase 25 by 37%, or some, something like that, or expand these brackets and there'd be numbers changing and signs changing. So Whenever I started thinking about this, firstly, I thought, God, that is so obvious. How thick am I for not realizing that, that you know, practice should look more like this, more what I call intelligently varied sequences of questions and the use of non-examples as well and, and boundary examples that we, we can dig into. So this stuff I thought was pretty uncontroversial. And I, I, in fact, it was one of the last things I read about when I was writing the book. So I have a chapter in the book and I think it's called something like making the most of worked examples. And this kind of the, the notion of variation theory only kind of comes in in the last couple of uh, parts of this. And I talk about minimally different examples and I talk about these varied sequences. And um, if I was to rewrite the book again, or if I was to write another book, it would probably all be about this because the more I read, the more I am convinced by this, that the choice of examples that we give kids and the choice of practice questions is of fundamental importance, probably more important than anything else. But here's the thing, Ollie, and this, this, <laughs> this surprises me. People don't agree with me on this. And it's all been kicking off. So I don't know if you saw, I know you're a big Twitter user, but so at the time of recording, so recording this towards the end of July. So we're going back about a month or so. I launched a new website, a new blog, variationtheory.com. And this was me working with two other teachers, kind of collecting together these sequences of questions and these intelligently varied. So you've got them on algebra ratio, everything you could, everything you can imagine. So I launched this at a conference. And previously, I'd launched at the, the conference a few months prior to that, I'd launched my SSDD web problems website. And it went down a storm, Ollie. I felt like a, a Twitter hero. Like I was going on Twitter and I was getting love off people. People were offering to marry me, have my kids, all this kind of stuff. I was going down an absolute storm. So it was the peak of my career. So I put together this variation theory website, which in my opinion is better. Like, God almighty, I would love something like this. I launch it at this conference. It goes down well at the conference. And I'm on the train home and I'm just looking through Twitter. I've never seen anything like it. At one point I'm called, are you ready for this? The most dangerous and clueless man in mathematics education. Now, I was happy with the dangerous bits. I'd never been called dangerous before. So I was very happy with that. But clueless, I wasn't so happy about. Now, that, that tweet was subsequently deleted and the person contacted me. So, I, you know, that, that, that's the matter closed. But 
Then there was like some, some what I would call, I don't know, valid criticism, but there was certainly criticism, certainly enough that I had to take notes and think, actually, I need to engage with this. I need to look at this. And it was really interesting, Ollie, because it's made me not change my mind about the principles, the principles of this intelligently varied sequence of questions. I, I am more believing than ever before. But what it has changed my mind about is, is about how you present things to, to teachers and how you present ideas and how ideas can be misconstrued. So I think a lot of teachers were thinking I was handing out a sequence of questions, sitting back having a cup of tea and magically kids were focusing in on, oh, that's changed there. I expect that to change. I reflect on that. And we're becoming kind of magically, magically becoming amazing mathematicians. Whilst I was just messing around at, at the front of the class. So what I've done, and I've actually done it in the last few days, actually, is I've reworked the website. I've, I've, I've essentially got a massive load of kind of pedagogy session, uh, section explaining how I actually deliver each of the activities, each of the type of activities in there, how I draw kids' attention to things, the kind of questions they ask and so on. Because, again, I just it was just a, a mistake on my part to, well, not emphasize it as much in the book, but that was because I didn't know as much, I hadn't had enough time to think about it. But then just to assume that people would know what I was talking about when I launched it, whereas something like SSDD problems, it's fairly obvious what it is. Four problems, the surface structures are similar, the depth is different. You give them to kids, you have a discussion about it, done. Whereas something like this, I think it's it's quite pedagogically demanding to get right. It takes quite a lot of skill for the teacher. The teacher's got a key role to play. And there is a danger, as one, one Twitter user who looked at the site said, just looks like a load of boring old worksheets. And that was heartbreaking because I thought, these are some of the best sequences of questions I've ever seen. But I can understand you can look at something and think, now, nah, what is that? Just to, like you can just get any old worksheet off the internet. It does the same thing. So I've changed my mind on that, Ollie. I've changed my mind in terms of, I think it's more important than I made it out to be in the book, but more, even more than that, I think it is so important that any new teaching technique or resource is underpinned by pedagogy and that that is articulated and explained as clearly as possible. Because whenever, before the website launched, whenever I was presenting this in conferences, it was going down a storm. But I think that was because I was modeling it, I was explaining it, I was involved in the discussion. When I put it out as a website, no, it just didn't didn't kind of go the way I expected it to go. So again, I'm, I love, like, some lessons are painful, and I've had certainly a few over the last many years, but that, that's been a particularly painful one. So that was... That was something I was proud of. And the two young teachers who, so Ben Gordon, who you've interacted with on, on Twitter, I know, and a lady called Jess Pryor, that was the first thing they'd kind of done in the public arena. It was a big thing for them. Like we presented together and they were like, Jess didn't want to do it because she was really nervous. First time she'd ever spoken. And I said, look, this is going to be great. This is going to go down a storm. And then we opened up Twitter. We didn't know what hit us. So it was a big, big learning curve. But I'm, I'm glad I've gone through it. And hopefully... The website will be better as a result of that. And hopefully next time I decide to launch something, I will be kind of better prepared, more aware of the pedagogical implications, if, if that makes sense. Good lessons about bring, bringing people along along with you. In that vein, I'm really interested, Craig, because you've, you've, and you know, we're, we're, we're approaching the last few questions here, but you've seen some big changes in your views about mathematics. And this is at the same time as you've held quite prominent positions you know, the TES maths advisor and things like that. And I'm sure as well, you know, you've got mentors and respected friends and colleagues who 
are all about, for example, problem solving and, and, yeah. and have beliefs about problem solving that you used to share. And this has definitely been the case for me as well. I've had men- mentors and people I look up to who are all about teaching problem solving in ways that I no longer think are that effective. So I guess what I'm asking is, as you've gone through this change, how have you dealt with maintaining the relationships with these people who, whose views you no longer, you no longer share? Yeah, it's, it's tough, Ali. I'll be honest. This sounds a bit dramatic, but it's, I wouldn't say it's cost me friendships, but it's certainly made kind of professional relationships a little bit more awkward. One big one, and I'll speak about this openly, actually. Andrew Blair is a big one for me. So I, I've known Andrew for, for many years. So Andrew is behind the Inquiry Maths website. I've known Andrew for, for many years. I interviewed him many years ago for the for the Tesmas podcast, one of my favorite ever, ever podcasts. And he spoke about inquiry and also being a head of department. And it was it was inspirational. And I I loved and still do love Andrew's website. And for listeners who've never tried it, this is where inquiries start with a prompt and it will be sometimes a visual thing or a mathematical statement. And the teacher will project that up on the board and the the, the inquiry starts by students asking questions or making comments and observations based on this particular prompt. And and I, when I met Andrew and I started like looking at this website years ago, I thought this has to be the way forward. This has to be the way forward because this is, this is the kind of kids running the lesson, kids steering the direction of the lesson. And it was exciting for me because you never knew what was going to happen in the lesson. You put this prompt up and anything could happen. So I tried these for, for many, many years with mixed success. Sometimes it was some of my favorite lessons. Sometimes I was frustrated because either students didn't get to where I hoped they would or whenever I tested them later, they weren't successful at retaining or, or you know, performing well on, on subsequent questions. So I was frustrated. So whenever I started kind of reading up on this kind of stuff, that was one of the big things I started questioning, kind of the, the the notion of problem solving, but kind of problem solving to the extreme, which is this kind of inquiry-based thing. Because Andrew essentially, and again, I'm putting words into his mouth, but I, I interviewed him reasonably recently for the podcast, and he, and he essentially said this, that he'll do the teaching at the point where it's needed. So he'll use the inquiry to almost create the purpose for, for kids to need to be taught something. So I don't know, this, this, would be a, this would be a terrible example, but something along the lines of imagine an inquiry where at some point you need to be able to factorize a quadratic equation. Well, once kids reach that point in the inquiry and they realize, actually, I need to be taught something to, to progress further, they would ask Andrew, the teacher, say, I'm stuck here. And Andrew would then do some teaching. And well, the more I read, I just thought, I don't know if I buy that anymore. I don't know. For me, for some of my students, that would be quite a frustrating experience for them. I would rather teach them all the basic knowledge first, practice it, get their confidence high, and then use these inquiry lessons at the end as a way to kind of apply those skills and, and do the kind of extreme problem solving elements as opposed to try and do the teaching, the problem solving, the inquiry all at the same time. But I was reluctant, Ollie, because I thought, whoa, this is a man who, like, I respect him massively. I admire his work massively. 
But I thought, I'm not sure I believe in it anymore. So with the podcast, what I try and do is I try and get as wide range a, a kind of opinion as possible. And it's classic, isn't it? Like we, we, we tend to like to listen to people we agree with and so on. So as I'm reading all this kind of stuff, and I'm speaking to Dylan William and I'm speaking to Chris Bolton and I'm speaking to Greg Ashman. I'm getting the same kind of messages coming through. And I thought, no, I've got to break away from this. So I, I wanted to get Andrew on and he, and he didn't want to for a while because I think with this kind of shift and this emphasis and people kind of moving more towards direct instruction and kind of the cognitive science and so on and questioning that, particularly on Twitter, Andrew felt there wasn't kind of support for that. And he was coming under what he felt unfair criticism. So I thought it would be a great idea to, to have an interview and not to kind of have it out, not as a confrontational thing, but for him to put forward his ideas and me to ask questions in the way that I hope I always ask questions of my guests and challenge them and so on. And I thought the interview went well, but the feedback I got was that I was kind of more challenging to Andrew than I was to, to, to other guests. And it was clear where my kind of preferences lay and so on. And my fear there is that maybe it's kind of damaged our relationship. I've not seen Andrew, Andrew since, but I guess I just want to make it clear that it's, I mean, I'll be open and honest. I don't use inquiries as much as I used to, just as I don't use kind of open-ended and rich problems as much as I used to. But when I do use them, I think I use them more effectively because I move them to a point in the learning process when kids can benefit most from them, when they've got that foundational knowledge, when they can they can work their way through them. When, and again, it's just, it's a, it's a different mindset. For Andrew, the inquiries almost provide the stimulus for the kids to then want to learn, to want to be taught something. But for me, I'd rather teach them in a controlled way as to the best of my abilities and of course there are things that can go wrong there and then let them really enjoy these enrich these inquiry these problem solving things because they can get more out of them but yeah it's, it's been difficult ollie because it that was what i used to believe in and when you believe in something you believe and you listen to and you agree with the people who put forward that belief and when you change your mind you inevitably are going to run into conflict. And again, much of it has been good natured with people like, especially people who I've trained on problem solving. I mean, you can imagine how awkward that is, right? <laughs> you can imagine whenever I, whenever I've delivered training sessions, like teachers I've used to mentor, are like, are you winding me up here? For years you've been banging on about this and now you're telling me you've changed your mind. So that's, that. I mean, that's awkward, but most of it's been good natured. But I guess, I guess it would be the same, right? Like, I, well, you can see it myself, like this variation stuff. I believe wholeheartedly in it, but I've only been believing in it for kind of three or four months. And whenever I was getting some criticism, I took it hard. I took it really hard. And it was it was difficult to distinguish the criticism from the person who was making it. But imagine you've dedicated your whole life to something and then somebody starts saying, I don't believe in this anymore. And it's, you know, this sounds cocky, but it's me in quite a high profile way in a quite a popular book and so on. That's going to be that's going to be difficult for that person to to take. So I understand it, but it say it does it saddens me. I would much rather have a positive discussion because I believe and I genuinely believe this. Everybody wants the best for their kids, no matter what approach. If you're a teacher and you care, you want the best for your kids. Nobody's deliberately teaching their kids in a way that's going to not make them learn as much or not make them as successful. So I fundamentally believe that. But I also fundamentally believe everybody can learn something from everybody else. Like I can learn from these because the way when these people write these blogs about these some of these lessons that they teach and some of the learner generated examples and the questions the kids are answering, I look at them in awe thinking, 
that looks amazing. And I want to learn from them. I want to learn how to get my kids doing that. But at the same time, I think that it's not the only way. I think teachers can learn from more from the kind of explicit instruction way of doing things. So yeah, like a lot of things, it's been a big learning curve for me and it's been tough at times. But yeah, it's, it's always difficult when you change your mind. But I think if if you're not willing to at least open the opportunity to, to change in your mind or have that possibility, then yeah, I'm not so sure it's that good a thing. Mm. Mm, definitely. All right. Imagine if you could send a tweet back in time. I mean, <laughs> Twitter, Twitter didn't really ex- exist 14 years ago, but imagine it did. And, you know, you got young Craig Barton setting out about to embark upon his first year of teaching and you could write him a tweet. What would you say in that tweet? Well, I'll tell you what, Ollie, you know, it's, inter- it's, it's interesting this. Yeah, I don't know if you listened to my interview with Anne Watson and John Mason. Now, I'll tell you what, that's another interesting one, that, right? Because me and Anne Watson disagree on quite a few things. Now, she, she, she's been quite critical of my variation website, and she's a massive proponent of variation theory. And it was a, a really interesting interview because we, I like it when I disagree with people. And we had quite a, quite a like, warm, generous disagreements, but it was fine in the interview. And at the end of it, I asked Anne a similar question to this. I always ask my guests, what do you wish you knew when you first started teaching that you know now? Which is, again, a a similar question to to what you're asking me. And Anne gave a really interesting answer to this. And it's made me think really hard. She said, I wouldn't send anything. I wouldn't say anything because, and not necessarily, well, when she said that, I thought maybe it's because she wants to learn from her mistakes and all that kind of thing. But I think it was slightly different to that. She used the phrase, you speak to your condition. So she thought, and I kind of looked this up and I, I dug into this a little bit more. And I'm, I'm fascinated by this. And I wonder what your take on this is. And that is, as a young teacher, I don't think I was ready to hear this. I don't think if, if I'd have been able to say I'd been able to send a tweet that linked to a Kindle version of my book, right? And I'd send to the young Craig Barton, have a read of this book. Firstly, you'd be thinking, how flipping thick is this book? You know, how, how much time do you think I've got to read this? But say, say you read it, I'm not so sure it'd have that much of an impact because I don't think I was ready for it at that stage. What I was ready for when I was a young teacher was interesting math problems, puzzles, all the things that I used to love as a maths teacher, because I didn't have the experience of working with kids who weren't as confident or didn't enjoy mathematics as much as I did. And I had to I had to go through that process. So I think it would have been wasted on me. I think a lot of cognitive load theory, a lot of Bjork stuff, I think would have been wasted on me. But it leaves me in a bit of a dilemma, this Ollie, because it almost makes me think, what's the best way to train our teachers? Do they have to experience all these mistakes, experience all these different types of teaching and approaches to finally settle on either something that works for them or to be in a position where they can evaluate both process, like all the different processes? Well, that's fine, but it's bloody inefficient, right? If, if, if every teacher's got to go through 12 years to get to the point where I'm at, where I'm feeling, finally feeling reasonably comfortable and yet fully expecting a change in the, in the next few years, like anything could happen. Not only is that inefficient for me, but it's not great for the kids I've taught, right? Because I firmly believe I could have taught kids better. I firmly believe for 10 years, I was relatively ineffective. Like kids got decent results. Kids enjoyed enjoyed the lessons and stuff. I think they could have been enjoying them a hell of a lot more and been a lot more successful. And that's hard for me to say. But at the same time, I'm saying this, that I'm not sure if I'd have read my book and read all the research I'd have read at the start of my career 
I could have got to this point within a year or two years. Perhaps I could have fast-tracked it a little bit. Perhaps I could have got there within four or five years. But part of me thinks, and I'd be interested in your take, Ollie, I think you've got to go through some of these things. I think you've got to go through these mistakes to, to kind of get to the point where you appreciate the different methodologies and you can evaluate them. But then we've got this, we've got this balance. Is that right? Is, is that fair on the kids? And I see all these kind of teacher programs now, kind of initial teacher training. And I see kind of two types of them. I see the ones that are still kind of stuck in their ways, that it's the same stuff that don't engage in this cognitive science. And like, it breaks my heart a little bit when I read Amazon reviews of my book and it says things like, I mean, this sounds really cocky. It sounds like I'm just saying this to, to big this up, but there's an important point to this. Like I've had many reviews that say, I learned more from this book than I did in a year's of, year of training. And that I mean, it makes me feel great, but it upsets me at the same time. And I hear teachers saying, like memory, working memory was never mentioned or the testing effect and spacing was was never mentioned in my training in my first few years of teaching. And I think that can't be right. But then again, you get like training courses that I think have gone the other way, which is you see this, it's all cognitive science focused and it's all about this, this and this. And like me and you both know, Ollie, like you mentioned it with goal-free problems. It's all well in, it's all well in practice. But you, you've, you've tried it and it's not quite work with your kids. And now, because you've got this knowledge and experience, you're thinking, how can I tweak this to make this work? But imagine if you were just told that was the only way to do it and it didn't work for you. Like you'd feel a bit of a failure as a teacher and you don't have that other experience to fall back on. So I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm stuck here, Ollie, because firstly, I think definitely teachers need to be exposed to these ideas, but I think they also need to be allowed to make the kind of mistakes that, that we've both made in our career. But can I justify that? Because a teacher making a mistake almost inevitably means kids aren't learning as much as they should be able to do. So a long rambling answer, and I don't know the perfect answer, but I'm not convinced that if I had a conversation with myself 13, 14 years ago, I could make that much difference, which is which is tough. I mean, well, do you think the same old? Could you, would you be able to speak to the, the young Ollie Lovell and get him to see the light? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, you asked me the question at the end of your interview. And my answer was pretty much the same. I wouldn't, I wouldn't send anything, but I, I took a different, different tact. And, and my tact was that for me, the enjoyment is the learning process, right? That's, mm. that's what I, that's what drives me just learning, having realizations. You know, I was reading a paper the other day and I literally like shouted out loud, like, this is awesome. Like I was by myself <laughs> in my bedroom, just, you know, I, was, I got that excited. And, and so I wouldn't want to take anything away from that from that young Ollie by, by giving him some advice that wasn't the right time for him, put it that way. But do you think you could have taught your kid? Yeah. Do you think you could have taught your kids better though, Ollie? Does that not frustrate you? Because it definitely frustrates me. I look back at some of those old lessons and think they were crap. I know what you mean. And there is a bit of a, there is a bit of a moral thing, but I guess it's this kind of thing where you, you kind of grow with your students as well. So, you know, the, mm. the, the, I think about those students that I had in my first year and especially those, those VCAL Victorian Certificate of Applied Learning students that I, that I struggled with, you know, because they were rowdy and they were, they were, you know, they, they, were, they were really struggling with their maths. But we kind of learnt together and it was this process of figuring each other out. And, and definitely, you know, if, if I had them again, like I'd, I'd do things differently right from the start. But there's also, I, I think there's things that you, you can't understand until you actually do it yourself. Mm, and so yes. you can you can give tips and and you know I'm I'm thinking about potentially penning some some ideas and some experiences at some point as well and I think there's things like routines like the importance of routines that just 
when you talk about things that weren't mentioned in, in teacher training, you know, no one ever mentioned routines. But yet, probably the biggest lesson from my first year was that routines save everyone. They save the students yeah. and they save you. And that, that they just, they're just the foundation of good teaching to my, to my view. And yes. I don't think I could have, I think people could have told me that, but I think that the experience of actually finding out what it feels like to not have a routine and then finding out what it feels like to have one is really, really powerful. But yes, that, that's not to say that we can't improve our, our teacher education. And I think there's big, big gains to be made there for sure. I've been looking forward to your answer to this next question, Craig. Can you please can you please finish this sentence? And maybe you can do a version before and after your kind of epiphanies, or or maybe just one will come to come to mind. But oh, I remember Mr. Barton. He's the teacher who. Please finish that sentence. Whoa, that's just a tricky one, that Ollie. <laughs> I guess if you well, it's interesting actually. So I guess if you asked kids from my first school. They'd probably say something like, oh, I remember Mr. Barn. He's the teacher who either sang the Barbie girl song or did a dance off with a year 11 student. All the crazy things that young teachers do we think are a good idea at the time. And now I just flipping cringe at them. But I guess, I guess that speaks to a bit of a wider point that I guess the most memorable experiences there were things outside of the lesson. I think that if you asked, if you ask kids, what was I like as a teacher in the math lessons? I think just as kids inevitably do, they'd cling on to memorable experiences. So I talk about in the book, the Swiss roll incident, and we, yeah. we've spoke about things like, like this in the past where, because that's what kids, kids remember at the end of the day. I think hopefully they'd remember me as somebody who was a geek, who absolutely adored maths. I speak about in the book how I tried to hide that away for the first few years, but particularly to kind of middle set, 15 and 16 year old lads, because, and the girls as well, because I thought the best way to get kids on board was to try to be like them, try to share their attitudes. So I would say things like, yeah, I know this isn't great, but we've got to do it. Oh God, this is boring, but let's battle through. And that wasn't the right thing to do. But I would hope that after a while, when I saw that that wasn't the right thing to do, that, that kids would realize I absolutely loved maths and I do love maths and, and that would bring a lot of them along with me. And I think, I hope they would think I was a good teacher and they enjoyed my lessons, but now, I just hope what I would hope, nothing would make me happier, Ollie, than a kid saying something like, I remember Mr. Barton, he's the teacher who made me realize I could do maths. That's what I want to hear. That's what I want to hear. Not everyone's going to like maths. I know that. I think I can make more, I think we as teachers can make more kids like maths than than they they believe. And I've certainly, that is, is so heartwarming when you see a kid, or sometimes the best they'll say is, this is all right, this, sir. This isn't too bad, sir. And you, you'll take that. You'll take that any day of the week. That's like music to my ears, that. But I think that's our job, you know, to, to make kids, two things really, feel successful and be successful. Because feeling successful, regardless of the impact it has on motivation, regardless of the impact it has on learning and all that, feeling successful as a kid has got to be one of the most important things a teacher or a school can do for a kid. Because we know that being a kid is hard, especially being a teenager with all the kind of insecurities and anxieties and stuff going on. Um, particularly kids who lack confidence in a lot of different areas of their lives. A lot of the kids that I teach and probably you teach as well, tricky home backgrounds and all that kind of stuff. If you can get a kid who feels like they are successful, 
feels like they can do something. That has to be the number one goal. It has to be the number one goal. And I've seen a few kids who that'll tip onto arrogance. And I've probably been there myself many times. But as a general goal, feeling successful, I think is important. And then the second part of that, actually being successful. Because at the end of the day, that's what we need our kids to be. Whether it's something as narrowly focused as exam results, that's going to set up kids for college, for university or so on, or whatever it is, job or, or anything like that. And the knock-on effects that has on motivation both within our subjects and across other subjects. So that's my dream, Ollie, that if, if kids see me, that hopefully le- it's less about the dance-offs and the, the singing and the bad hairstyles and the terrible dress sense and the Swiss rolls and all that kind of stuff. But it's, yeah, actually, you made me feel successful and be successful. But maybe that's a pipe dream, but that, 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 that is definitely the dream of. Sounds great. <laughs> What's your big three, Craig? Oh, Ollie, I'll tell you what, I'm thinking of scrapping this question myself from my own podcast. <laughs> it's bloody impossible. I know, right? To limit it down to three, it's an absolute, absolute nightmare. I was in two minds what to say for this. I didn't know whether to try and come up with new stuff that perhaps your listeners hadn't seen or whether just to come in with, with my like genuine most kind of go-to things. And I'm, I'm going to go with the last rally. So most of these will be familiar, but I, I just thought it would be useful just to explain kind of how I use them and why I use them and, and, and so on. So I'm, I'm going to break it down to a couple of different areas. So the first will be, I've talked about Corbett Maths, but if ever I'm looking for a question or a worksheet or a homework or a video, it is the best place to go to. So Corbett Mass, it is a joke. He's an absolute legend. I interviewed him for my, my podcast. It's, it's just a wonderful website. Whenever I want something a bit different, particularly these days when I'm thinking about purposeful practice, so the kind of bridge between problem solving and developing fluency. And I've loved this website for many years, but I'm, I'm kind of seeing it in a new light now. And I'm looking to adapt activities to, to fit this purple, purposeful practice mode. And that's Don Stewart's median website. I think it is it is an absolute goldmine of, of just quality mathematics activities. I just think it's, it's absolutely wonderful. So I, I adore that. So that's Don Stewart's median website. And the final one is that I think that I don't know, again, on the Slice of Advice podcast, Amir Arizu was one. I think he was the first person on there to, to give his contribution. And he made a really interesting point, Ollie, that he said that he's stepping away from Twitter. That's one thing he's learned this year to use Twitter less because it's a bit like what we were saying about question level analysis. You get bombarded with too much data. There's too much stuff. And it's like Twitter's amazing. Like without Twitter, I wouldn't have a podcast. I wouldn't have written a book. I wouldn't be the teacher that I am today. I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be speaking to, to you, Ollie. So Twitter's been amazing. But I know what Amir means. Like you go on there, you think, God almighty, how much flipping stuff is there going around? So there are two people who, for me, find me the best stuff that's going around. One is a resource-focused thing, and one is a research kind of focused thing. So the resource-focused thing is Joe Morgan's Resourceaholic website, which if there's a good math resource that gets shared she finds it and she puts it in a maths gems series of posts and i think she's up to, i think she's in the 80s now of maths gems she does one about once a month once every six weeks and it's five things that she's found on twitter 
And you guarantee at least three of them will blow your mind. And there are a whole wide range of things that they're absolutely brilliant. So Joe, the kind of curating the best stuff around, I think is absolutely brilliant. And then in terms of research, and this this will be like you, you've sent me kind of $50 across, Ollie, for this, but it, but it's you, it's the stuff you do on your takeaways. And I was, I was slow to get onto these. And it was only whenever I started kind of reading your work and stuff and then kind of preparing for the interview that I subscribed to your takeaways and stuff. But I think they're absolutely brilliant because you you firstly i'm biased because you're, you're a maths teacher so you tend to have similar areas of interest um, to me but you read outside of the domain as well and you just you, you find me there's always five interesting things there for me to, to to look up and i like the way they're presented i can just go in and kind of read the tweet but then i can then follow it through and kind of find the paper or listen to the podcast or whatever so yeah and i'm, I'm genuinely not just saying that because you, you've invited me on the podcast if you combine you you and joe together i've got all my bases covered so if i if i'm not on twitter for two weeks I'm not missing out on too much because I, I rely on you two guys to kind of find me the best stuff around. So that'll be it's kind of like my big three and a half. I've kind of gone for two for the end bit, but hopefully you'll let me off that one. No, and I, I appreciate you accepting the $50 as well, Craig. That's very, that's very good of you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am interested because when you invited me onto the Slice of Advice, I thought there's so much I've learned off you this year in reading your book and stuff. But if I talk about that in your Slice of Advice, probably all of your listeners have, have heard that already. Right, so I wanted to go go and do something different. That's why I talked about effect sizes. But I'm thinking that if anyone's made it this far, they're probably a pretty pretty diehard Craig Barton fan. So I wanted to give you <laughs> a kind of get out of jail free free card, Craig, and and and, a, and an opportunity to, to have an additional big three. If you wanted to kind of let us know about those those additional little things that you thought maybe your listeners haven't already already heard of, and I know I've sprung this one on you, but if if it's a one or a two or something, feel feel free. All right, well, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you, one, one spring to mind straight away. I don't know if I'll be able to come up with three, but I, just, I, wanted to make, I wanted to mention, I'll tell you what, I've, yeah, I have two for you straight away, actually. And we're, we're going, you know what, I think I have three. I think I have <laughs> three have come to my, <laughs> It's like a big three inflation. I'll have 10 in a few minutes. I'm going old school with this, Ollie, because whenever I give a lot of talks, one thing I get from teachers is, I'm learning things come around in cycles in education. So this, this, wherever I'm getting obsessed with this emphasis on explicit instruction and mastery and, and variation and all this kind of stuff, turns out in the 80s and 90s, like this, everyone was doing this anyway. And then we went on a different direction in the 2000s, all this problem solving and stuff. And now we seem to be we're coming back, which I, which I found fascinating. And the kind of consequence of that is that some of those resources from what I call the olden days, which old teachers will be going mental at me for, for saying that, but are really effective and really, really relevant now. So there are a few of those that I'll, I'll draw people's attention to. So the first is a, a fairly obvious one, but but maybe maybe some teachers, still quite a few young teachers, look at these like it's the best thing they've ever seen. And they're the what, what I call the standards units or the improving learning in mathematics units. Now, I, I put all these on my website. They're completely free. And these were part of the national strategies when I first started started teaching so you know 12 years ago every school got these sent in a box and i don't know if you've come across these ollie but they're flipping unbelievable they're, they're just kind of rich activities but not like your token kind of card sorts or jigsaws or anything like that they've all got pedagogical notes with them they cover all the big areas of mathematics some of them are post 16 as well and they're just absolutely brilliant so they're the standard units improving learning in mathematics the, the late malcolm swan was one of the kind of writers of them and they're, they're absolutely phenomenal so that would be that'd be one of them the standard units and as i say there's a link to download them all i mean my mr barton website 
Following on from that, the other one, which is a bit old school, uh, I linked to these on my website as well, is the CIMT resources. So again, not enough teachers know about these, but these are essentially a PDF, PDF books from year one, I think, or at least year seven through to GCSE. But better than that, so not only do they have exercises, Firstly, they're all right. Or they've got answers with them and there's no mistakes in the answers, which sounds like a stupid thing to say, but it's dangerous wrong answers. And if you grab something off the internet and the answers are wrong and a kid doesn't realize they're wrong, then you've got a whole host of problems there. Kids are developing misconceptions that there might not even be misconceptions. So the CIMT, they're an amazing source of questions, but they also have teacher notes, suggested questions, ideas for dialogue to have, rich activities in there, mini kind of low stakes quizzes, mental arithmetic tests. It's like a Joe Colleague assessments. They're flipping brilliant. And there's probably certainly over a hundred of these packs, each topic specific. They're absolutely joke how good they are. And they're just freely available as well. And I show them at conferences. And again, teachers have never seen them. And it's absolutely brilliant. And then the final one that I just thought of, and this kind of links together those, we've got something in the UK called the, the National STEM Centre. And it's, it's it's based in York. And they've got an online thing, like an, an e-library. And it's free to register. I, I, don't, I don't even think you need to be part of a school. You've just got to put in your email and stuff. And what, once you register, you're in. And basically, it's a digital archive of old school math resources going. And they've got some new stuff in there as well. But they've got all the old school stuff. So one thing they've got, and I've made, I talked about this with Dylan William and Tom Sherrington is the smile cards. And if, you've, mm. if listeners have listened to those episodes, you may have heard Dylan mention them, that he used them when he first started teaching and Tom Sherrington as well. And all the smile cards are just stored there. And it's, again, I would never use them in the way I think they were originally intended, but for kind of problems, they're, they're absolutely brilliant. But Ollie, they've got thousands of other things in there, like old textbooks that have been kind of digitally scanned and stuff. And it's just they're absolutely ridiculously good, good resources. My dream is, and this is what I'm holding out for, there's a group of books called SMP books. I think it was Scottish Maths Programme or something like that, SMP. And when I was in school, they were, when I was a kid myself, they were just on the way out. So we're talking kind of, you know, 80s, late 80s kind of, kind of thing there. And they have some of the best problems around and best kind of structured activities around. And teachers have the odd one or two of these books. And some lucky teachers have the full collection. You can't get them anymore they're out of print ebay they're selling for a fortune but my dream is that they get digitized and i'm kind of pressing the the, the stem center to i don't know whether it's a rights issue or what it is but that would be my dream but yeah I, they, they'd be my they'd be my big three ollie standard units cimt and then to register with the stem center and just look at some of the wealth of stuff that there is there that's great and you're right i have heard of none of them and i'll be looking into them very very soon <laughs> nice. okay. finally craig any last calls for action things you'd like the listeners to go away today and do and and what's next for craig barton okay well again i've very rarely anything to sell but i guess my only thing to sell is my books but i'm guessing if you're still with us at this point you, you've, you've probably read it but yeah obviously check out my book how i wish i'd taught maths the websites that sprung up from the book I've, I've mentioned them all but it's probably worth mentioning again diagnostic questions has always been around that's completely free i think we're up to thirty-five thousand multiple choice maths questions now on the site there and launching a new scheme of work that will be hopefully kind of global that, that anyone from any country can use and it'll mean that if you map your scheme of work onto our system your kids at the end of each topic unit will be set a diagnostic quiz 
that will be automatically marked. And then three weeks later, there'll be set automatically a follow-up quiz to that. So you can hopefully distinguish between learning and performance. And it's all completely free. So I'd strongly advise listeners just go diagnosticquestions.com to check that out. Uh, the other websites that have sprung up, SSDD problems I spoke about, mass vens I spoke about, my new one, variation theory, and read the kind of pedagogy section. And my hope with them, Ollie, and this is what I've tried to do with everything that I've done, is I try and build a critical mass. So with diagnostic questions, we spoke about, I wrote a hundred questions and then it grew to a thousand and then teachers write them from all around the world. It's the same with SSDD. I wrote about 150 of those and then I throw it out to the maths community and I hope that people contribute. And it's the same with variation theory. There's 200 activities on there now, completely free. And my plan there is that other teachers, if everyone is classic cliche, if everyone who visited the site wrote one activity, well, then I'd have 250,000 SSDD questions and 60,000 variation activities. So that's my dream, that people visit them, use it, try it with the kids. And then if they have time, either with a colleague or on their own, try writing one themselves. And that's not just for a selfish reason to make the website grow. I think pedagogically, it's such a useful thing to do to either write an SSDD set of four questions or write a sequence of intelligently varied questions. It's hard but it's such a useful thing to do or write a diagnostic question together. I think it's it's good practice. And for me, it's far better than planning a lesson out is, is thinking about questions and so on. So maybe my calls to action, visit the sites, try them, use them. And then if you can contribute, and that would make me a very happy man. And in terms of what's next, Dolly, well, what's next for me now is it's, you've got me up too early here. So I haven't even had my breakfast yet. So I'm going to have some, have my Weetabix after this. And then in terms of a plan, it's summer holidays for us now. And it's, for the first time, I'm not writing a book or writing a website or anything like that. I'm just working for diagnostic questions on the scheme of work. I'll be building up variation theory a little bit. I'm on another secondment for next academic year. So I'll be in teaching probably year 11s and doing some work with sixth form, but I'll have a lot of free time on my hands aside from my diagnostic questions work. So I'm going to try and speak to as many teachers as I can, get in as many different schools as I can, because that's how I learn, Ollie. I used to be an advanced, well, I still technically am an advanced skills teacher. It's the best job in the world. It meant that every week, one day a week, I was in a different school environment, working with a different teacher, working with different kids. And that's where I learned everything. That's where I got to try stuff out, learn different approaches, see different classes, different school structures and so on. So I want to try and replicate this this year. So at least once a week or once every two weeks, I'm going to be out and about working with colleges, sixth form colleges, schools in challenging areas, private schools, schools in different countries, because I'm ready to learn the next thing. I'm at a stage now where I'm, I'm feeling fairly comfortable with the stuff I talk about in the book. So I want to know what's next. What's the, what's the next big thing that's coming my way? And the final thing, because I know I'm banging on too much, Holly, I'll leave a little teaser here, a little teaser. And I think I mentioned this to you before, my next big area of interest, one word for you, Ollie, sleep. I'm obsessed, <laughs> absolutely obsessed with solving the sleep crisis. And hopefully I'm lining up a big interview with somebody who knows far more about it than me. But I'm, I've reached the conclusion that unless we crack sleep, we are wasting our time with everything else. So that is my next big one. I'm on a mission, Ollie. Solve the sleep ep epidemic. Very interesting, Craig. Well, we look forward to hearing more about that. Craig Bond, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for getting out of bed so early in the middle of a heat wave as well over there in the UK. You know, we've talked about so much today. We talked about test, test, tests, your quiz homework quiz. We talked about the school level stuff and creating change there. Some, some of my key takeaways from here is all about getting one colleague on site and then getting them to model to other colleagues as well as encouraging people to try one thing out for a number of weeks and then moving on. 
We talked about collecting evidence and the kind of evidence we want to we want to collect. We talked about what you've changed your mind about, which was very interesting. And finally, just the closing questions, your big three that expand to the the big six as well. <laughs> Hopefully, listeners will go away and they'll write some questions for for your websites. And we look forward to hearing all about more sleep in future. So, Craig Barton, <laughs> thanks thanks for coming on, and and I look forward to continuing the conversation with you. My pleasure, Ollie. Absolutely loved every minute of this, mate. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the ERRR podcast with Craig Barton. As always, you can find show notes with links to all the resources that were mentioned in the episode at ollielovell.com. If you enjoyed this episode, then please share it with your friends and colleagues. And if you really enjoyed it, then I'd love for you to consider supporting the production of the show through making a donation on Patreon. Making a donation, however large or small, will help me to cover the cost of room hire and sound engineering. Check out patreon.com forward slash E-R-R-R to explore this possibility of supporting the show. If you've got any suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear on the ERRR podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Or if you've got any questions, comments, thoughts or reflections on this episode or any other ERRR episode, then please, please, please drop me a line via Twitter or email. You can find both on my website. It's always wonderful to hear from listeners. Thanks for your time and listening today. Hope you enjoyed the double episode. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning. This podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net.au. Listener.